When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Hot D, the officially unofficial podcast for House of the Dragon on HBO. I'm Jim. I'm Aaron. Today we're covering season one, episode ten, the Black Queen's feedback. Uh, Aaron, what are we looking like on the feedback? We, we got a lot of feedback. We got hundreds and hundreds of feedback. Half of them nice. to let me know that uh, my Negroni order was incorrect. Oh no! I was, I was quoting Emma Darcy uh, being interviewed by her. Uh, um, uh, her 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 co-star Olivia. Why can't I Cook. remember Olivia Cook? Yes, thank you. I want to say Stark, and I'm like, I can't. It's not Stark. <laughs> that would be weird. Olivia Cook, and uh, they asked. Uh, she asked, uh, you know, what's your favorite drink? And uh, Emma, they said uh, a Negrone, and uh, Olivia is like, oh. And then, or no, she said uh, the the Grone, and I think Olivia is going to say, oh yeah, I love that one too. But then she says, they said. Subliga- oh, Jesus Christ is this word. Subligatio. Oh, sure. what? wait, can the Italian gentleman no, who's also an amateur mixologist help me with this? <laughs> you is nailed this it. What? You nailed it. Subligatio. Yeah, you got it. Which means which means mistake in Italian, apparently, because the joke mm-hmm. is that instead of gin in the drink that they set, that they put in Prosecco. OK, is that the white wine? Yeah, not, not definitely not a meat. Definitely not, not prosciutto. A meat. Prosciutto, prosciutto. Uh huh. Prosciutto. Prosciutto. Now, in my defense, uh, number one, <laughs> I'm an idiot, and my <laughs> mouth no work right. Uh, second defense is, have you seen what they're garnishing drinks with lately? I don't feel like a mm-hmm. little wedge of sliced ham on the side would have, like, you know. Oh no! The drink world's hair back, but I, I was yeah, thinking. I was, all right, I'm not sure you could here. you could really taste the meat next to the Negroni, next to the Campari and the Negroni. But yeah, I could see it. But now that makes a lot more sense. That's you get the a thing. Sparkle. You, we had a brief foray that we were trying to alternate between lunch with Jim and Aaron to drinks with Jim and Aaron. Right? That was our cocktails. I forget where it was a nighttime lunch, and the conceit yeah. was. Every time, every week, you would make a drink for us to enjoy, a cocktail. And uh-huh. one of the early ones you made was a Negroni. And I remember thinking that that is an overwhelmingly <laughs> bitter drink. It sure is. Yeah, it's the Campari, yeah. right? It's the Campari. Yeah, it's like, th- think, I, I don't know. We, we were talking earlier before the podcast about weird things that we've tasted. It, I, I imagine it tastes like what orange rinds taste like. If you were to just eat an orange rind. Sure, sure. But I'm not certain because I've never eaten an orange rind. Well, what's stopping you? You want to nothing, be certain, right? Literally nothing is stopping me. I don't have any oranges in the house, but I am a grown man. I could get in the car, drive to the store, and take a bite of an orange rind. 
I was amused that Trevor was the first one to call me out on this. And somehow like this, this email arrived like minutes after the podcast published. Like it was like <laughs> something uh-huh. else. So if you're out there trying to groany, uh, garnish it with some prosciutto. Why sure. Not? I'll try I'll do it. it. It's the uh, it's Negroni Soprano. <laughs> That's what Tony <laughs> okay. would do. Uh-huh. Uh, the Tony Negroni. Our, the, to- <laughs> the, the Tony Negroni Soprano uh, with pr- prosciutto instead of gin. Uh, mm-hmm. Anyway, thank you. I'm glad that once again, uh, my various foibles and defects entertain you all. Uh, I appreciate it. Um, first actual actual email of the day and don't forget don't forget this is not our last uh this is not our last rodeo no 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 we got one last season wrap-up podcast uh maybe two actually because uh i also um approached uh, kim renfro on twitter and asked if she'd like to join me to discuss the song of ice and fire prophecy that was the big kind of like eyebrow raising moment you'll recall from the, mm-hmm. the pilot and we're going to kind of talk through like how this track through the season, if it changes our uh, feelings on any other grander song, of ice and fire kind of theories and whether it was overall net good, net positive, net positive, net negative or kind of neutral on the show. That might be like a little bonus that comes out later in the week, um, but we'll see. But we're definitely going to be like one last roundup and I'm going to talk, I think, if I can get it together, I'd like to talk some like book differences to show differences. Mm-hmm. That might have to that might, that might be something I do with Anthony later on. Um, but but another round of feedback, uh, another round of last thoughts, uh, people's predictions and hopes for the future, uh, which I'll be curating to make sure there's no spoilers. Uh, there's no no none of these none of these dastardly book readers trying to pass off their <laughs> their their reading comprehension for prophetic insight. Right. Uh, and, and yeah, yeah, just just a little bit of just just to enjoy the come down from this this great first season of television. Um, first up for this, this is just a conventional feedback episode. Uh, Sierra H says, I am loving the current series, but I'm currently making my way through Germ's main A Song of Ice and Fire books. That's the one that starts with the Game of Thrones and it's currently sitting unfinished at A Dance with Dragons, ironically enough. Uh, I pause these during the hot D season since watching the first season, becoming familiar with the characters and the conflict. I'm worried that going back to the books will spoil me for future seasons due to events being mentioned on the page as historical world building. Do you have any information that may allay my fears or is it wise to not touch any form of a song of ice and fire or asshole off, uh, during the off season to remain fully unsullied, <sighs> man, it sucks because, We've talked about how Game of Thrones is kind of dead, you know, like nobody was mm-hmm. using the memes. Nobody like the House of the Dragon has single handedly resurrected everyone's interest in a Game of Thrones. And people are going back and rewatching the series They're going back and rereading the books. And they're like, I remember why I love this until they probably get to season eight. And like, oh, yeah, I remember why this is <laughs> this is reviled. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's great. I think that's great. I will say that you are going to be hit with some if now that you have pretty good working knowledge of the characters and the situation of a house of the dragon you are going to get hit in the face with some pretty big fucking spoilers major yeah. spoilers for the ends of major characters in the show um as early as season 4 i think the first two or hmm. three seasons are pretty safe although there might be some septa 
lesson to Sansa and Arya that might make an offhand comment that spoil. Mm-hmm. And the books for sure, you're going to get some of that stuff too. The 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 the, the upside. The upside is I've been I've known exactly what's going to happen. Like I have been surprised by motivations and like flavors of things that happen. But all the big events, uh, Vagar chomping on Arax, uh, you know, Viserys dying and when he's going to die, um, you know, Vaymon getting his dome peeled off, like all, all these like big shocking events I have known in advance and I have been delighted by this season. Hmm. But it does change what you know, it, it will change like your, your approach to material. So I think most people will be fine to go and read that. And you're going to, you're going to get some bomb spoilers and go, Oh my God. But like, also I think if I'm correct, the spoilers that you'll get, it's, it's not the end, you know, it's like, imagine if you were reading ha, uh, you know, some imagine if you're from the perspective of watching a Jon Snow sequel, and you're you're wanting to stay unspoiled for Game of Thrones. You find out that Ned gets beheaded. Mm-hmm. You know that's that's terrible. But it's not the climax of the story either, right? <laughs> I mean, you could even say that about John's death, which is crazy. Sure. But yeah, yeah, sure. totally. It's 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 not the end of the story, and there's lots more twists and turns. So like I I'm kind of ambivalent. I'm not pro people reading Fire and Blood because it's 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 a less interesting. Uh, mm-hmm. less well-written version of what we're getting on this show. Um, I think A Song of Ice and Fire, the main series, starting with the Game of Thrones, is an amazing series. It's it's not finished. Um, but yeah, like I said, if you, if you really want to read it, if you feel like, man, I really want more of this, I think um, graduating from show watcher to book reader is a good idea. But you will spoil yourself on House of the Dragon, and it will change how you approach the material. Sean says, I'm curious if the battle... Dragon battle occurred in the middle of nowhere at 30,000 feet above the narrow sea. How did anyone know of its result? How did Damon find out what happened? This is something that uh, people asked and kind of speculated. And I think we've addressed here and there, but um, in the book, it's mentioned that the head and torso of Arax the dragon washes up three days later on storm's end. Mm, okay. um, and mushroom embellishes it. He says that the Luke's body also washes up and Eamon drags it out and he stabs both of his eyes out with the drag and, 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 and wraps him in seaweed and makes it a present to his newly betrothed Baratheon sweetheart. Hmm. Um, and there's even scattered reports that the prince miraculously survived the fall, lost his memory and lived the rest of his life as a simple minded <laughs> fisherman. Hmm. But okay. I think either way, even if even if you don't know that the dragon washed up, the idea that um, the realm would know that uh, Aemon chased Luke into the sky on his giant, enormous dragon. Luke never shows up at Dragonstone after a few days. Even with that evidence, I think it's enough for most people to put two and two together and conclude, you know, kinslaying. Yeah, and they might be implying, you know, the the dragon washing up and all that stuff. I mean, there's there's no there's none of that in the show because I think they wanted to go for this very particular moment to end the season uh, with yeah. you know Rhaenyra's uh, change of heart there, and so they nailed that. But I I would expect that we will know a little bit more about it at the beginning of next season. Yeah, 
Yeah, we'll find. And uh, I don't know, mate. There will that that'd be a that'd kind of be an interesting way to rejoin the series if like you literally see this giant dragon carcass or parts of it washed up yeah. on the beach, and it's like, oh right. Yeah. So yeah, they they might. But if not, I think I think there's enough to figure it out. Mm-hmm. And and also keep in mind because people are questioning about like how, you know, how long would it take all that kind of stuff. Like man. I mean, I, I actually looked it up. I guess ravens can fly 25 to 50 miles an hour uh, and can cover hundreds of miles a day, like trained ones. Hmm. Um, and Dragonstone is very close to Storm's End, like less than 100 miles, I'd say. So, like, it would be an hour or two flight for a, a, a raven. So that's like in, in instant messenger range almost. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dwayne says, you know, if we're keeping it leal, and we we like to around this this parts, there's no way those terms Otto gave on Dragonstone should have been taken by Rhaenyra. She had to know it meant certain death. Otto has been preaching that you have to kill off any challenge to succession for over 20 years now. He's even tried to have her killed in the previous episode. Why would she believe anything he said, even if they were Allison's orders? We all know Otto would take measures into his own hands. What does Rhaenyra know, though? Because, like, when you say that Otto has been preaching you have to kill off any... That is something he's been doing behind closed doors to his daughter only. Because Mm -hmm. this is literally treason. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) So, how much of Otto's venom... He said he tried to have her killed in a previous episode. Again, Allison doesn't know that. Rhaenyra doesn't know that, yeah. I'm sorry, Rhaenyra doesn't know that. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is... Mm -hmm. I, I think, I, but I think you're literally true. I think eventually Aegon and Otto would come up with a pretext to put Rhaenyra and her sons to death, especially especially mm-hmm. if uh, if Aegon's reign doesn't go well. And like, have you seen Aegon? Would his reign theoretically go well? Probably not. So I, I think you're right. But like, the question is, does Rhaenyra know that? And yeah. um, I, I think it, it, there's a lot to say that like, well, why would he? If you took these terms and you abided by them. Um, why would Otto make the realm? Why would he make his house look like kinslayers to the rest of the realm for no fucking good reason? Right? Sure. Yeah. If he doesn't feel threatened, I I don't see any good reason to. Uh, but I, I, I think I he would. Stuff. I think he would. But like, what would you know? What what would what would Rhaenyra calculate those odds to be? You know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Dylan says, I really enjoyed your discussion about the symbolism of the crowns worn by Aegon and Rhaenyra, and I have additional thoughts. Bearing her father's crown has got to be a profound impact on Rhaenyra, but I also hope she doesn't forget its deeper significance. Even though Visite's reign was peaceful for the realm, the people of Westeros probably remember the source of the good times. In the first scene of episode one, we saw King Jaehaerys wearing that same crown, reigning over 55 years of unparalleled peace and prosperity in uh, Westeros and earning the moniker the Conciliator. High lords and small folk alike won't soon forget the memory of Jaehaerys, and since Vizzy's reign was about 30 years, the majority of the people of Westeros would only be one generation removed from the old king's reign. Some of the older population remember the reign of Jaehaerys and the good queen, Alicen. To all these people, Jaehaerys' crown should mean peace, prosperity, and stability, and if Rhaenyra strives to be a wise ruler, she'll try to capitalize on the goodwill of that symbolism. This is a good point. Ooh, tough to do when your son is murdered. Yeah. But, like, the fact that you have over 80 years of this golden crown representing, like, the best of the Targaryens and, mm-hmm. you know, the Conqueror's reputation is somewhat checkered. 
and some of the people wearing his crown, uh, you know, Magor the Cruel, uh, <laughs> might have put some tarnish on that old steel crown. Mm-hmm. Uh, or, or, was that steel or iron? I think it might have been iron. I, I, I think, yeah, you've got some powerful symbolism here that like this is you, do you want to go back to the bad old days of conquering and fire and blood or do you want good times Jaharis and Vizzy T to continue? Yeah, I think we're back to the bad old days. Like I said, her son was murdered. I don't know if she can keep up the peaceful face throughout this. Um, well, the thing is, is like, I think that um, if we're talking about the small folk and the lords, I think that um, Aemon killing Luke is going to be seen as shocking. Mm-hmm. You know, you've got all the Kinslayer stuff. Uh, you've got like, you know, it's it's also just bullying writ large, like a, a, a dragon the size of a jumbo jet taking on a dragon the size of a Cessna, smaller, less experienced, you know, kid versus the older, more mature bull. You know, it's like it's it's not a good look. No, it's not a good look. Uh, Colby asks, one small question I have is why did everyone act so shocked when they learned of King Viserys's death? I understand the anger and frustration when they heard that King's Landing is anointed a new king, but shouldn't the death of Viserys have at least been the least shocking thing ever? I mean, <laughs> did they not see him like just days ago? Why would they assume it's murder? He could hardly walk and he had half a face. Well, it's just Damon assuming it's murder and Damon is itching to go kill Otto. Like it, Damon yes. wants a fight. He's looking for yes. any excuse he can. Uh, and, you know, him sniffing the cup that they're using to serve milk of the poppy to Viserys a couple episodes ago is part of that. Kind of sets that up, right? Yeah. I mean, I don't think he literally detected anything with that sniff. I, I think it was more like he was checking it because, man, if there was anything weird about this, he was. I, I mean, D- Damon has definitely had milk of the poppy, right? Recreationally. <laughs> <laughs> the odds are pretty pretty high pretty right high. okay so the he knows what it smells it. like so mm-hmm. what i think happened there is he was looking for for mm-hmm. some some smells he didn't recognize but he didn't find mm-hmm. any but here he's like well he they clearly killed him obviously because i want to fight yeah and in real life there is a phenomenon that often happens when people get to the end of their life where they will have this like period of recovery that lasts uh, hours, days, sometimes weeks, where they have a return to apparent health before their body just completely shuts down. And this might give them hmm. time to make peace. Uh, might, I, I'm not sure why biologically the body, but it seems like it's a well-accounted-for thing. I've seen it happen twice uh, with one of my grandmothers and one of my grandfathers. Um, and I've heard from like hospice care nurses and stuff that sometimes this angers the family that mm-hmm. like our dad or mom was feeling just fine and then they and you must have done something so it's like i think they're channeling a little bit of that too it's like yeah Hmm. the man's losing an lost an arm and half his face but he did drag himself onto the iron throne he did drag defend his family courageously he did have that dinner where he was enjoying Mm -hmm. the and i i get it i i I think it's natural (laughs) but yeah look at him Look at him. But yeah, just look at him. Your, <laughs> right. your dad had stage four lymphomic cancer. Okay. I'm glad he had a, a, a clear couple of days at the end, but gee, yeah. the, the signs were all going wrong, you know? For sure. Uh, Mark in San Francisco says, this is probably only interesting in the context of a full season reflection. I was sifting through my impressions of the show and thought about the hypothetical union of Lena and Viserys that was proffered and not pursued. 
I think everyone agrees that it's politically unwise for Viserys to not choose Lena, do massive damage to his alliance with Corlys, and ultimately set the path for the Dance of Dragons. However, using the benefit of knowing the future of Lena, I wonder if the marriage would have solved anything. We see that Lena and Damon were only able to have female children, and that... <laughs> the daughter seed is strong. Uh, and that Lena <laughs> dies because of the third birth with an assist from Dragonfire. Can you imagine if Viserys and Lena had married and had the exact same result? I know that Gurm loves to play with fate and prophecy. I'm taking this as Gurm saying that Viserys and Rhaenyra and the realm are fated to deal with female succession one way or another. I I I, I agree with your last point. I'm not sure I agree mm-hmm. with your reasoning that got you there, but it does seem like... Yes, this is something kind of like the build up to the American Civil War where like everyone kind of knew like this is a thorny issue that we're going to have to wrestle with one day or another with some sort of finality. And it just kept on getting put off and put off and sleep hit the snooze on the alarm clock. And it finally fucking came due. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you, I mean? <sighs> so it's like because I. <laughs> It's hard for me to it's hard for me to grapple with like a hypothetical. It's like, well, what if all daughters? Because like, why would that be the likely result? And also, well, yeah, trying to figure out what is the what is the source of it? Are we trying to say like there's some kind of I don't know fate that is binding them to this this clash, Um, or is it? Or is it or is it just pointing out something that's like coincidental and would be interesting to think about? Because the latter I, I'm it, on board for, but Yeah, and I think it's like in terms of like, I don't know, some kind of Bayesian probability analysis. There's things that could happen to make mm-hmm. a civil war over a, f- a female succession more likely and less likely. And I think uh Vizzy T getting remarried and having all daughters would actually make it less likely. Mm-hmm. Because you do it, it's it's it makes it harder for the lords to just be like harumph harumph, we're going to rebel. If you don't have a legitimate male heir and what are they yeah. going to do back up the Renice, sorry, right. Rainus, and then go back to Lenor and he's, <laughs> you know, I guess he's not dead in this scenario. Like, yeah, right. You're kind of fucked either way you do it. Um, that's not to say they wouldn't, because, again, the Lords be be, be crazy, but. But it's a pretty weak claim that that Lenor would have in that situation. Yeah, I, I think it would. I think it would smooth things out a little bit. Yeah. If they have a son, then you got the exact same, like, you know, um, it seems like that's the thing that cemented, like, once King Viserys had a a legitimate male heir or Mm -hmm. someone who could be a legitimate male heir, it's like, then it's like, you know, what became, you know, fears and possibilities became like, oh, look, this is actually flesh and blood. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, I do agree that it seemed like the realm was going to have to deal with this one way or another. Um, because they're going to keep having women born in the line. They're going to be capable and they're going to keep having men born in the line that are fools. And one of those combinations will eventually take hold, but, but, uh, we'll, we'll see. Uh, Sadie says, please consider this request for a ruling from the King for the love of God. Please stop referring to the parentage of Jace, Luke and Joffrey as treason. Rhaenyra is the heir. Who is she supposed to, supposed to commit treason against? Only Laner, Viserys, or Corlys have any standing to question the boy's parentage, and none of them do that. Her duty as the heir, or her job to the con- country, was to produce heirs. She did so in a way that the country, Viserys, her husband, and the father-in-law all acknowledged. There's no crime against country, and therefore no treason. I disagree. <sighs> Viserys just doesn't, just won't 
actually recognize it as what it is. It is That's actually treason. Yes. Like, behind the scenes, wink, wink, we know it's not treason because Viserys, we think... He never directly acknowledges this, but we think he understands that these boys are actually the Strong's boys. He just mm-hmm. doesn't care. Right. The proper way to do that, because like, who is she committed treason against? King Viserys. Yes. Because she yeah. is saying that I'm going to have true born children that will continue the line. Unbro- and she has failed to do that. And she is dishonestly presenting these children as true born Targaryen Valerian heirs. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't understand what's. What's so like I can I can see your argument here, but the thing is, is like King, the right way to do this was Viserys to be like, you know what? My daughter did step outside the bounds of marriage. I'm going to recognize these kids and legitimize them as bastards. Mm -hmm. But he doesn't want to do that because he knows that's a political shit show. So he chooses to try to have his cake and eat it both. And which effectively does make Rhaenyra. A, tre- a, a, a treasonous like what she did is is mm-hmm. uh is is ripping off the iron throne essentially yeah no i'm, I'm with you all right uh edmund regarding supplying king's landing by land we know they why they can't do that remember the wagon train episode uh this is where the gold did it ever make it to king's landing Maesters i don't know about still that debating gold. it to this day yeah some gold um did. so the only so so he's saying that like there was an attempt to resupply to move the 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 golden grain from uh, the reach to the King's Landing and mm-hmm. uh, or maybe it's from the Lannisters and King's Landing. Regardless, Daenerys swooped down and just burnt the shit out of it with her dragons. Mm-hmm. The key difference with this is that Daenerys enjoyed complete air superiority. Mm-hmm. And dominance, like there was nothing to answer that other than, I guess, the couple of scorpions, the, yeah, yeah, scorpion crossbow, giant crossbows. Um, but she, she had, she ruled the skies. None of the greens or the blacks can say that. You might have like air supremacy, and that one side has more and better assets and better and and maybe better position, but none of none of them has you know the the this complete the what is it wait superiority versus supremacy. I'm probably getting my tactical and strategic nerd. One is like you've got you know both people are in the air, but one side is winning versus the other side has nothing left they can put to the air and there's nothing they can do. So like. I don't know. I don't know. I think you could, if you had Vagar guarding it, you could definitely move shit along the land. But Vagar's one mm-hmm. dragon; she can only be one place at a time. Mm-hmm. So it's that's the thing. I think there's going to be some really interesting dragon-based strategy and tactics going next season, and a lot of people are only looking at angles from like Danny when sh- that wasn't the case, or other historical analogs where the Targaryens were all united. This is kind of a unique. It's not unique in the world because this shit happened in Valeria all the time, but like it's unique as far as we experience in Westeros. Here's the ridiculous thing about me is I kind of love logistical drama. I I play these like I do, too. I play these video games that are just like take a a material and turn into this other material and then run it through this other machine and turn it into this final product thing. Mm -hmm. And I absolutely love organizing logistics of that. And so if you can add drama to the logistics, like, oh, they can they're they're able to ship stuff across land, but only in a single caravan because they can only protect that with their dragon. But they need to get four things here at once from four different places. And they only have so many dragons. 
that stuff is going to be fascinating to me if they delve into it. <laughs> I don't know if most people will say that. They'll probably get pretty bored with it, but I'm curious how it all works out. There's still lots of hot D to talk about. We'll be back right after the break. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And now back to Hot D. Uh, Shu says, do you think they light up the light up instruction scrolls for the painted table slash map are lost in the Targaryen Civil War? I found it funny that in Thrones, we never see the table lit from below. Got me wondering why, and I chuckled at the idea that the table was so unique that if you didn't know to slide the candles underneath, you'd never know how cool the table really was. I saw uh, Jason Concepcion on the main podcast. Uh, the The official was joking about they lo- that they don't make the light bulbs in right, that size yeah. anymore. Because, like, yeah, if you've ever had like, a projector, that's the devil. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. If it's more than five years old, do they make the bulb? Is it still... Uh, but I, I, I mean, the real answer is... Uh, I think that they just changed the design of the table because this is a, a sick idea and yeah. this is kind of a retcon. Yeah. But also, yeah, maybe no one told anybody after this that actually if you light up a tray of candles and you slide it down, this happens all the fucking time where people rediscover an artifact from the 18th, 19th century and like, what the fuck could this possibly be? And it's like, oh, well, it's the it's the thing that that, that stirs the narwhal uh, whale oil in the in, in mm, the lamps, yeah. because if you didn't do that, it would congeal. And it's like, oh, of course, but well, we don't have like our whale oil and like, <laughs> and we don't have right. lamps that are made like that anymore. Why would we know? Yeah, exactly. So I I'm tickled either way, because 200 years is a long time to lose the instruction manual for a fancy lighted table. Mm hmm. Uh, Shu continues, can you guys clear up how much time has passed from the Night King Viserys dies until Luke and his dragons are chomped up? I got the impression that the last two episodes all take place in under two to three days, which seems wildly jam-packed. Can you clarify? It's my understanding that this stuff has all taken place over two or three days. I I think you got King Viserys dies, a day passes, at the dawn of the next morning, they install Aegon Aegon II as king, uh, Rainus bust out of the floor of the dragon pit. She flies over to King's Landing. That takes maybe 30 minutes mm-hmm. and lands. And then there is a, I believe, a day, you know, that Rhaenyra labors for a day and a night. And then the next dawn, uh, Jace and Luke fly out on their mission. And then the chomp chomp happens. Because again, it doesn't yeah. take an hour to go from King uh, Dragonstone to Storm's End. And the thing that really anchors it for me is she tells Otto on the bridge that they'll have her answer tomorrow. And I'm I'm morally certain that they have to be showing us Damon telling Rhaenyra about the fate of Luke that before yeah. that deadline runs out. So, yeah. yeah. And they it, mentioned that dragons fast. fly faster than ravens. We know the ravens can go 20, 30 to 50 miles an hour. So I'm thinking a dragon probably go 100, like... Yeah, there, there's there's enough there's enough ground to cover. Now that does conflict with what I said earlier about you know dragons washing up parts washing up three days later and all yeah. that. But like again, I think Jace 
the expectation that 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 Luke would go to and either get favorable terms, in which case maybe he stays and get married to a Baratheon girl, though he couldn't do that. But but whatever, maybe he sends a raven back and a couple hours later they find out or he returns on dragon either way. It's not going to be more than like if he's gone for like 12 plus hours without hearing anything. It's like that's that's pretty bad. Mm -hmm. So. um, Adrian says, I'm pretty disappointed the direction they've taken Eamon and Lucerus in this episode. What's never explicitly stated in the book, it's heavily implied that when Eamon takes off after Lucerus, he does so with an intent to kill. Uh, he chooses to kill his kin by having it be an oopsie daisy moment between Vagar and Arax. We they dull the moment, in my opinion. They take a deliberate choice and make it an accident. Sure, Eamon has to decide what to do from that point on, but he's reacting and not choosing. You put this hand in hand with the confusion Allison had on Viserys's deathbed. This is turning into a show about misunderstandings and accidents, not one about a thirst for power that brings down a powerful family. It's like Three's Company with Dragons. Thoughts on these changes? I personally find them taking from the characters, not adding to them. Uh, and he mentions parenthetically that he bought his first ever Game of Thrones Hot D merch, keeping a Leal t-shirt, mm. which, again, merch.baldmove.com. If you want to keep it Leal on the off season. King Jim Harris, what do you think about the plot points of this episode, taking agency from the characters and make it more random chance and accidents? I don't I don't know what they're going to do with the dragons for the rest of this series, but, you know, it, it puts a little bit of agency on them, which I think is interesting. But yeah. I, I would just say I disagree. And I, I, I don't. It, this is entirely opinion based, like uh, both sides of this or however many sides there are. Uh, I, I just think it was interesting to me that a mistake could lead to something. And yes, it does. It does change like the nature of that particular event. I don't think it changes the nature of the thing overall. I would say that auto is like stands out as like, obviously uh, pressing these issues for his own naked ambition. Um, and without that naked ambition, none of this stuff would have happened. So I, I don't know. I, I don't, I don't see it as like doing much damage to the idea that this is all uh, happening because people are just ambitious and callous and willing to go to whatever lengths to preserve their own power. Yeah, I find that something that a lot of people I'm not going to say it's a mistake, but it's human nature to like isolate events and not see the big picture. It's like imagine if you're watching the Lord of the Rings, the two towers I just watched that uh, uh, last week and uh, you blame the old man who can't quite keep his bow back for long enough because, like, you know, it's like the, the orcs are outside Helm's Deep and they're roaring and the men are upside and King Theoden has ordered them all to draw and aim, but not to release. And this old man gets tired and he accidentally lets an arrow and <laughs> it goes into an orc. And that's uh -huh. the proximate event that starts to battle. But imagine going and be like, man, it's this fucking old man. This fucking old man worked his forearms out, got his mm -hmm. chest and back muscles engaged. King Theoden might have found the way to, to like, no, that's misunderstanding the entire. It, it 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 is the thirst for power that brought down a powerful family. You're mm -hmm. just you're just um, you're just um, mistaking the Archduke Ferdinand moment as the thing that like that. Yeah, that's what starts it. But. 
it reminds me there's a scene in like uh, one of my favorite movies is uh, The Hunt for Red October. And there's a scene where like the Russians and the Americans are like, you know, struggling over the Atlantic Ocean. They're like, you know, there's all this jockeying and there's brinksmanship. And there's this admiral who's just observed the plane trying to come in a landing, like botch it and like st- get get stacked up. Maybe the pilot's dead. And he's like, God damn it. If this keeps happening, things are going to spiral and escalate and get out of control. And someone's going to die and we'll lose control of this whole thing. I think this episode is all about that type of brinksmanship that like, yeah, it's dangerous when Eamon chooses to go off after Luke. It was dangerous of him mm-hmm. to threaten this messenger in this great Lord's Hall. It was dangerous of Rhaenyra to send her. One of her sons alone on Dragonback when she knows Vagar is out there. Like, if it didn't happen here, it would have eventually happened. And then you would be uh, complaining uh, unless a person chose to, you know, like, like push a button, fire a missile and kill Luke. Like, I, I don't know. Like, I feel like that's a little bit too straightforward of a way to interpret this. Yeah, it's it's the straw that breaks the camel's back. But you've been piling straw on it intentionally for ever. Right. Yeah. It's like, why did the United States enter World War II? You could come up with a lot of different reasons. A lot of people say, but like if Pearl Harbor never happened, does America really never get into World War II? Or was that inevitable and it was just looking for an inciting? I think it's a lot more interesting to look at history as like these fuzzy probabilities that, you know, like any one thing could have done it. But the problem, the reason that these fuzzy probabilities are lended to such weight is the state of the world, you know, that led up. The last, you know, going back to World War One and going back to, you know, Bismarck's strategy of interlocking and locking alliances to try to keep Europe out of the wars that it kept finding itself in for centuries and centuries. You know, it's like it's that's, I think, more interesting than like, oh, well, this guy squeezed a trigger and this archduke died. And then, of course, it's going to happen, you know. Yeah, and I think it can be both, right? You can have people intentionally pushing this along and you can have things that happen that are accidents yeah. that spark other events and, and they're I don't both think the one is inherently less interesting I think I was going to say they're, they're both flavors. interesting the state yeah. of the board that makes things inevitable and also yeah it's always fun to find like what is the actual first cause what is the first shot in this war sure, what sure. is and just like the old man got a little weak and let his bow fly just like mm-hmm. uh, Eamon let his inner bully get the better of him yeah uh, John from East Tennessee says, I'm surprised it hasn't come up on the pod yet, but according to the source material, the final two candidates at the, uh, to be made heir at the Great Council of 101 was not Viserys and Rhaenys, as portrayed mm-hmm. in the show, rather it was down to Viserys and Lenor. I'm not sure why the show would change this, as I believe it would uh, give a lot more validity to Corliss' ambition and give him more of a reason to be bitter towards the decision, since it would be his own son that was passed over rather than his wife. Perhaps the show didn't want to make it clear that the decision was to pass over a woman's line in favor of a male line and opted for the easier story of passing over a female instead. But the fact that this hasn't been mentioned in the pod has bothered me probably more than it should, especially when the book reader of the program, that's me, continually mentions the votes being 20 to 1 in favor of Viserys over Reynus. Um So, like... If they skip the part of Reynus being skipped over and being the queen that never was, I don't think that pays tribute to what an internal shock it was to House Targaryen when it happened. Because, you know, when Jaehaerys skipped over Rhaenys in the line of succession, it provoked the longest estrangement between Jaehaerys and his queen, the beloved Queen Alysanne, ever. Like, she fucked off for two years because she was so insulted at her husband's apparent dim view towards women. It also pissed off the Sea Snake, 
mm-hmm. who abandoned his post of Lord Admiral, uh, left his post on the small council, and it led to the real first real rift between the Targaryens and the Baratheons. So, like, if they just made this Lanor, who you know was like you know like if they made it between Lanor and uh, Viserys, you lose all of that history. Like when someone calls Rhaenys the queen that never was, the show's got to go back and explain all this shit. Um, so <laughs> also, sim- there, there's, I would say then it becomes a different issue. Like, are we going to put a baby on the throne? Because how old would he be? Boy. Uh, well, I, I think know. they also played, that's the thing, they played a lot, as they did in Game of Thrones, they played a lot with the kids' ages to kind of make oh, okay. their story gotcha. they want to tell make a little yeah, bit more yeah. sense. But but yeah, I think I think this simplified things um, and was actually a better way to talk, to talk about, like, what a big deal it was um, than, you know, because hmm. essentially, and it's not that, uh, because the thing is, is if Lanor was made to be the heir that kind of has to legitimize the female line too. Right. Because you can't get the Lanor without going through Rainus. Sure. Yeah. So it, she was also like, got a kind of got skipped over twice. First when the King went with Balon, uh, Viserys's father. And then finally, you know, at the great council. So I don't know. I, I thought it was fine. And like I said, how do you explain her backstory as the queen that never was unless you kind of fudge the details a little bit on the great council. So now it's been mentioned. So everybody who listening to the pod does know. Right. Right. Uh, Michelle from London. Damon said to a young Rhaenyra that sex is about more than procreation. Yet here we are with more than a million heirs between them and birth control available to them. Yet despite the trauma of losing her mom and what I can only assume is the high rate of women dying during childbirth, why are they still having children? I was really surprised to see her pregnant again or yet again at the beginning of the episode. Uh, backups. Let's, let's, you need backups for those heirs, man. Plus, I think some people genuinely enjoy having children. Sure. Yeah, there's like, an interesting thing that once Emma you get Darcy says about it um, in the inside the episode thing where she's talking about like how much she appreciates this little like family unit unit that she's created. Uh, or Rhaenyra like yeah that's and I think like you see that you see that forming here in this episode and really starting to feel it just as it's kind of plucked away from her which yeah she loves her children and she has a very pleasant relationship she had a great relationship with her ex-husband uh, you know she had a great relationship with her ex-lover she seems to enjoy a relationship with Damon uh, Damon seems to enjoy his children at least the ones that are dragon riders <laughs> Um, like, you yeah. know, and I've often thought like if I was like a landed lord, you know, if I was like independently generationally wealthy and didn't have to worry about any other concern, I'd probably have a fuckload of kids. Like it's, yeah, it's I've I've got the one and it's been a great experience. I'd probably keep on making it happen. Like, why the fuck not? You got all those servants to take care of them. <laughs> you can just ignore yeah. your wife and let her do it. Yeah, it's yeah. That's yeah. how it goes, apparently. Yeah. Um, so, like, I, I, I kind of have sympathy for wanting to have a big family if you had the resources and the support to do so. And, like, the, so the one remaining thing is, um, you know, the fear of childbirth leading to the end. Um, sure. And I don't yeah. know, like, once you have, like, f- <laughs> two or three, like, seemingly decent childbirth experiences and you got, the, you know, whatever about your hip structure and stuff and, and your womb is working to where it's not going to be some kind of catastrophe like Ama, maybe you just keep rolling the dice. I mean, fucking historically, people did. Yeah. Yeah. 
So, yeah. Uh, Michelle also says, I know you've had many questions about the G-forces experienced by Dragon Riders, but this episode led me question the sun exposure and frost experienced by Dragon Riders. It's surprising to me that Targaryens aren't super tanned or sunburnt, and they aren't dressed a lot warmer to be on Dragonback. <laughs> also wonder if there's an equivalent of an Icarus myth in the canon of the Song of Ice and Fire and Fire and Blood. Mm. Um, the latter thing, no, I don't think of. There's some cautionary tales of children jumping on dragons before they're ready, and the dragons just bear them where they will, but like, and actually flying too close to the sun and you burnt up, I don't, I don't think so. Yeah, I mean, definitely like the elements. I, I would worry about those. Uh, that storm looks extremely uncomfortable. Yeah. It's like it's it's kind of like riding a motorcycle, I would imagine, with no helmet in in a sleet storm is what I was yeah. getting. And that seems extremely painful and very dangerous. Yeah, and like uh, I thought that was cool. We just got see done seeing the re-release of Avatar, and I thought it was cool mm-hmm. how their winged riders had these like fancy goggles that they had fashioned from the wings of an insect. Because like, yeah, that's I've ridden a motorcycle without a helmet and goggles very rarely, and I don't understand why people do it by choice. Because like yeah. above 45, 50 miles an hour, fucking, how do you see? Like mm-hmm. just just tears streaking out of your eyes and. Um, I, I thought it would be, and like, I also think in real life, like, uh, when humans are put in these weird environmental situations, like I think of the Inuits, uh, in the, in the Arctic that they've got these like sunglasses that are like these strips of leather to have slits cut off that like essentially polarize the light. So they're not blinded from, from the glare of the sun bouncing out the ice. And like, mm-hmm. I, I kind of was hoping to see a little bit of innovation and in headgear with the Targaryens, uh, yeah, it would just make sense. I, I know yeah. they want us to to be able to identify the dragon riders, but you right. can do that with costuming pretty easily. Sure, sure. And the dragons themselves are much like, you know, did disparate mm-hmm. size and color and even body shape. So, yeah, I was hoping to see them, you know, kind of ex- like look more like fighter pilot uniforms, not yeah. as many capes, not as much flowing material that's going to billow and flow. And ba- but like also it's a fantasy you know, uh-huh. at the end of the day, uh, rule of cool and all that. Um, finally, she says, I found it surprising that Valerians were so easily persuaded to support Team Black when they, one, suspect Rhaenyra of murdering their son and heir, and two, saw Damon spent uh, maybe 30 minutes mourning their daughter, and three, Damon decapitated his brother a month ago. I think the show answered this, and it's like, well, putting all that aside, we have grandchildren that we love and care about. Mm-hmm. So, and they're true born, you know, they're, we, we know they're from our daughter. Are we going to abandon these to death and destruction? Cause they're never going to be safe. So I think. And Corliss has had a, had a near death experience too, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. He, he probably came back changed. So, I mean, he definitely, the, he manifestly came back changed. We see it. And I thought that they, Steve Tassant did a really good job at the, of, showing the his conflict it's like ah he killed my brother but also mm-hmm. my brother is a bit of a hothead and would run his mouth and like i and he's making the same mistake i was making yeah exactly so i for me i felt like they did enough um but i can see other people disagreeing so uh john says or actually she has one other postscript and what capacity I'm going to ask, I'm going to put this to you, Jim, since you're not a book reader. In what capacity mm-hmm. do you think Lanor will return to Fire and Blood? 
Because now that Lenor is alive in the show, there's been a little cottage industry of like, yeah, how could we with little tweaks in this, like, you know, have him reappear in the main series? I'm a little skeptical. I think his story is done, too. Yeah, especially because I know just enough to know that he doesn't come back in the books. Everyone just assumes he's dead. So I don't think the show is going to bring him back. Right. But Game of Thrones does this thing where it's like people that you think are dead will come back in the books disguised. And sure, then, sure. you know, there's been several examples of that. And, uh, you know, um, it's never worked out really in the show. The show, when when they've done that, it's just like, oh, you know, <laughs> right. like Barrison Selmy is comes back in disguise, but he reveals himself in a very first scene in the show where he doesn't in the book. It's like stuff mm-hmm. like that. Uh, oh, I think of the Gravedigger theory. Yeah, that, that was a big thing in the books where it's like <laughs> we just roll up on the hound and he's just alive. Yeah. So like. I wouldn't put it past him to bend like, oh, it turns out this character that enters the Fire and Blood later series is actually you're going to understand Lanor in disguise. Hmm. Uh, it okay. wouldn't it wouldn't it wouldn't shock me, but like it's just not my read of the situation. Well, and I guess there's just uh, just enough lack of information in fire and blood to be able to do stuff like that, because I when I think of Game of Thrones, I think of like a very uh, precise narrative and you've got the book encouraging you to think that maybe this is the same person we thought it was before, but it's never going to tell you the answer in fire and blood. You don't, you don't have that depth, right? You don't, you don't have right. the opportunity. Right. It's more just like, and this happened and that happened and this happened. Where would you get the flavor that would let you say, maybe that character was actually this person returned yeah. in disguise. So they, and the hell they could it do it, but I don't know what, guess what would be the purpose because i don't i don't see corliss lasting very long i mean i don't know i guess he looked pretty strong this episode well so like if you needed dragon riders and mm-hmm. rhaenyra and damon both know that they've stashed a a, a living healthy dragon rider yeah that's is there a point. way like and that the thing is is like to go into that in any further detail i'd have to spoil the shit out of jim and i haven't decided if i want to to because like you know like i i think some of these theories are like outlandish and whatnot mm-hmm. but like to fully consider them i'd have to talk about them and i used to on the old game of thrones show like just do a private show with me and jim wasn't in the room I don't know if I want to do that. Maybe next season or maybe I'll do a little segment. Oh, you know, I can discuss it with Kim. Maybe as uh-huh. a as a special spoiler addendum for her because uh, like she's a safe person. I could talk these things over with. Um, but like, yeah, I've just been really loath because it's been so easy to kind of separate the two and just have Jim be unspoiled and, mm-hmm. you know, like just kind of ignore the really esoteric theory crafting and stuff. And I just yeah, but but maybe next week when I, I talk to, to Kim. So, yeah, I, maybe we can make that happen. Uh, John says, are the characters or I'm sorry, the writers doing a disservice in its attempts to quote unquote soften its female characters. It seems they've gone to great lengths to make the queens and princesses as sympathetic and wise as possible, largely giving over the heavy lifting of the bad action to the men. We do believe that by virtue of sex, a woman cannot be every bit as vindictive, ambitious or cruel as a man. I do not believe women are immune to the effects of power and greed any more than men are. Why does the show seem to be going out of its way for this narrative? As the show goes forward, there will be ample opportunity to evaluate this trend. For me, it feels very out of step for social political realities of Westeros and not particularly intellectually honest. 
Well, yeah. I mean, if you take the Game of Thrones universe as a whole, that's definitely not true. I mean, I think Cersei is a prime example sure. of, of that. Um, I, I would say, yes, the show is doing that. But I guess I'm willing to give it time to see what its point is because this is a slightly different show than Game of Thrones. So I don't yeah, know. And anytime you have societal trends, it's like a pendulum swinging and there's things that's like swing back and maybe overcorrect. Uh, it's my personal theory that, yeah, I, I hold that like every race and gender are essentially human and <laughs> that you will, have the, you will have the extremes of depravity and virtue um, expressed. Yes. And one of the things that one of the reasons I really want everyone to have an equal say in representation in government and society and in families is that I think the faster everyone gets a, a, a sit at the a seat at the table, equal seat at the table, the faster we'll realize, Oh, right. We're all kind of fucking humans and shitty. And we can come together as a unified planet to figure out our long-term problems. Mm-hmm. And as soon as, um, but there is in, in terms of the, you know, men, We've had a pretty good run of things with rare exception. We've kind of like ran shit for throughout human history. Right. Mm -hmm. So like uh, in 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 the last hundred years, uh, we've been reevaluating the place of women in society. And I think that it is a pendulum swinging back that like, yeah, the men that are at the top at the current day and look around. It's a lot of men of European descent. I mean, look, the last few hundred years, a lot of shit's gone down. We've been the one steering the wheel. Who else are you going to blame? It's only natural to be like, you know, if you could just get people other than these guys out and everything sure, would be sure. better. I think that's a fallacy, but I also think it's yeah. a reasonable thing for people to to think. And it's also mm-hmm. super valid for that pendulum to be swinging in, in our entertainment to like, you know, because right, there's there's still a, a, a way too many of us that are a little auto high tower. That's like, you know, I've seen people reconsidering women's suffrage of late. Like, that's fucking insane. That's a reverse of where we want to go. But like that Uh is in our society. People are writing columns and making videos and writing books along those lines. So it's like, no, I don't think it's I don't think it's unfair um, or invalid to be like, you know, in this situation, maybe women given women a chance would 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 be would be the way to go. Uh, Shane says, in my opinion, this episode lacked a memorable first season finale. Wow. I understand Hmm. the story that needed to be told within the episode, but this finale had a higher buildup feeling in comparison to Lord of the Rings. The buildup was just a third dude accidentally eating one of the other two dudes, even though the third dude was telling his dragon not to. Come on. Eamon (laughs) and Damon are my two favorite characters, but both came off as generally incompetent characters this episode. Eamon looked like a seven-year-old who just broke his mother's favorite heirloom. Damon wasn't bright enough to read a room and was overly emotional at not being in the fire and ice group chat. His only saving grace was his pursuit of more dragons. Ugh! now I have to wait until the start of season two to feel good again about the series. I'm going to have to agree to disagree on this because I think it was extremely exciting. Uh, This is this is the beginning of the war proper. Obviously, and as a book reader who was and who has taken a shine to Eamon as kind of someone like Damon, who's fully and just embracing being an asshole. I was a little taken aback by the fact that like, Oh, Oh no. Oh, Vega. No, I was not prepared for that, but I think it's a super interesting choice. They'll make these dragons not be fully in control. This is a theme that they've established with Viserys saying that like our control, of the dragons are an illusion. So like, 
it's not where I thought they were going, but it's an interesting twist on the narrative and fire and blood. And I, 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 yeah, I think it's super exciting. Just visual, like, you know, saying that this is not a banger finale because you didn't like the motivations behind the amazing jaw dropping action scene. It's like, I don't know. Maybe rewatch the season. See if you still feel like that, that because like, I, boy, I, I thought it was, I thought it was, I thought it was amazing. Carissa says the opening scene of Rhaenyra's miscarriage in episode 10 of Hot D impacted me as none of the other episodes did. I applaud the writers for creating that scene as a devoted Game of Thrones fan and a woman who has lived through the trauma, loneliness and effects of having a miscarriage. I appreciated the realistic portrayal of the following emotional pain and strength that Rhaenyra nevertheless showed. Hollywood can only hope to give back the realism of actually living the full experience of life. But the writers of Hot D have shown women as they did and could not in the original Game of Thrones, and I applaud this. As women do, Rhaenyra, despite having just had a stillbirth, continued on with her duty. The portrayal of women is more accurate than the rest of the world cares to admit. This experience is not fiction for countless real women. And, and just to say, like, this was a representative example, I got a lot of feedback about this throughout the season, a lot of it from women and men who love the women affected by this, and it's... Not universal. There are some women who were clearly re-traumatized by seeing all these difficult oh, sure. childbirths that had suffered miscarriage and had, had trouble uh, uh, in their own reproductive lives. And I, I feel like that's valid, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I also got a lot of women that's like, you know what? For fucking once, we see what it's really like that, like, a lot of women have to you suffer a miscarriage. And a lot of times it's at a stage where you might not even have told friends and family Sure. Certainly not coworkers. And you have to go through this by yourself completely alone. And yeah, I, yeah, like it's, I can see seeing this and seeing like, cause like, you know, like I did, we fucking don't even really give women paid family time off when they have like, is there anything for like people that suffer miscarriages? I don't think so. No, I think you actually have to birth a child to get any kind of leave. Yeah. That's deeply fucked. Uh, and mm-hmm. I've never even thought about it until this got brought up in the show that like, you know, I'm, I feel a certain way about women and men being able to have maternity to paternity time to, to get their kids set up. I think it's fucked that in many states, it's literally illegal to separate a puppy from its mother before like eight to 10 weeks. But like women are supposed to, if we're being generous, get back on it hmm. six weeks later, like mm-hmm. it's fucked up. Uh, but yeah, it's uh, uh, like I said, I know there's some people that this was traumatic. There's some people that felt this was vindicating and, and empowering. And uh, I just wanted to say that, like, it's something I've never seen in television. Certainly That's the this, thing about it. Yeah. 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 This, the, this the thing is, of, Game of Thrones has done the, the male trauma so much. Right. Like I think of, of Reek, that whole situation. I'm like, I feel that deeply. I don't want to have my penis cut off and then no ramsey acts like he's eating it in front of me that sounds no terrible that'd be that'd be that'd be bad i'd be traumatized by that (laughs) i have a very visceral reaction to that so to have you know the 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 other uh side of this portrayed as viscerally and as intimately as it has been i think is a good thing yeah a good thing for some people like some people will feel good about that some people are not going to want to see it and i understand that yeah, and I, I think it reinforces that, like, um, TV mature 
maybe stuff like if you're really traumatized over like you're experiencing active trauma, whether it's a result of uh, war, it's a result of a difficult childbirth experience or miscarriage, if it's a, re- a result of sexual trauma and assault. We have to, you know, like that. This means you these like mature doesn't necessarily mean it's for adults only. It means adults who have kind of processed their shit and are ready to see difficult things. Um, And I think that uh, this is like the first time that we've really seen, like you said, that the women's battlefield is the birthing bed. We've seen how many times we've seen dudes get their guts like, Mm -hmm. you know, like I'm uh, like and and I'm sure it's tough for veterans to see like war carnage sometimes if they haven't. But like, yeah, we're now seeing the other side of that. And and uh, it's something to be 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 mindful of and thoughtful of when we're engaging with it. Uh, by the way, our producer looked it up and she'd done some some shotgun research. She said a miscarriage might get you up to 12 weeks of unpaid job protected leave for serious health care uh, conditions uh, resulting from miscarriage and stillbirth. But it's not guaranteed. And again, it's unpaid. Yeah. Raise your hand if you're in a position to take 12 weeks unpaid time off. As a result of any trauma right now. My hand is not raised. Not a lot of hands out in the realm I'm seeing, Jim. So There's still lots of hot D left to talk about. We'll be right back after the break. And now, back to hot D. Uh, David in San Antonio says, I've never been a fan of Eamon, but the look on his face at the end of the episode made me hate him more than ever. I was okay with him killing his nephew because he's a warrior and their house is at war, but somehow Eamon's stupid look of shock and maybe remorse <laughs> disgusted me. People don't like this choice, all right? Some he's not a, he's not not a warrior. He's still just a stupid little kid who can't get over being made fun of a couple of times and he takes things way too far. Eamon got picked on as a kid and he used it to motivate himself to get big and strong and become a fierce sword fighter and get a huge dragon and good for him. But now and as then an adult- he and then he gets made fun of at dinner and he provokes everybody because he's a baby that like, how is this yeah. different than what happened the previous episode? I just think it's like because I, I, you know, like I have a lot of sympathy for kids that get bullied. I went through a lot of bullying, sure. you know, I was a weird religious cult and it made me different from a lot of people. And surprise, surprise, small town in the rural Indiana did not cotton to, too kindly to that. Mm-hmm. So I have a sympathy. I lose a lot of that sympathy when these bullied kids like shoot up a school. And I had to have zero <laughs> yeah. sympathy if that kid yeah. would grow up and like as an adult, come back locked and loaded to shoot up. Right. Like, fuck that. So, like I said, Eamon, yeah, I was, Eamon was becoming my new problematic fave. And this has kind of set me back because, yeah, yeah. But um, but it it is an interesting choice in terms of story and character. Because now he, the choice he does have to make is does he fess up and, and tell his family that this was all an accident and I actually have lost control of my dragon? Or does he be like, does he just take it and be like, yeah, as a kinslayer, fuck that mm-hmm. kid. Uh that's a super interesting choice for him to make. It is. And, and I don't think it makes him look any weaker or any more like a baby than it did when he lashed out at dinner. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Cause again, he's a, he's a man. He's a man now. Uh, he should be above the japes of a 14 year old, especially right? again, how insecure do you have to be that you are uh, one of the top 10 people with a blade in the realm. You're a prince of the realm. You're mm-hmm. physically fit and strong. You've got this badass sapphire iron. And by the way, the biggest dragon in the world. Yep. As at your <laughs> personal command. And you still and then somebody are, brings up that you pissed your pants. You pissed your grade pants. And, and sick. It's the perfect yeah. example. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And suddenly you will want to kill him. <laughs> like, come yeah. on. 
Yeah, it's like if Elon Musk had pissed his pants in third grade <laughs> and he's right. at some party and he just beats the shit out of somebody for reminding him of that fact. It's like, really? You can't just fucking laugh and be the bigger man under this circumstance? Mm-hmm. By the way, Elon actually called a man who rescued children a pedophile in, in, in an act of spite. So, like, mm-hmm. <laughs> now that I'm thinking about it, he he might be the kind of guy <laughs> he seems that would the do type. That. Yeah. Uh, Narl Scipione, do you think Rhaenyra let the abuse from Damon slide, the choking incident, because she knows it would be a mistake to lose the support in this critical moment? Mm. No, that's not how I read it, but I suppose that could be a factor. I've been thinking about this ever since I see I, I saw the finale. Yeah, it's a very it's a scene that inspires you to think about why the hell this happened this way. And I've got a big brain take. Are you ready for it? I want to hear it. I think Rhaenyra absorbed the full lesson that Damon attempted to teach her there, which is, yeah, you've got your pretty words and your attempts to be peaceful. And then you got your raw, naked displays of strength and which is more effective. But in this case, this raw, naked display of strength is powerless when the person or place that you want to display that power to intimidate and cow you love or can't afford to lose. Then it's meaningless because what is Damon going to choke her to death? Right. No. All he can do is bluster. And I think when she he releases her, she kind of like I I watched this scene a bunch. I think she realizes that that kind of proves her point. Like, oh, you want me to go and fucking torch uh, King's Landing or choke it to death or strangle it and starve all the small folk? I can't. This is the realm I love and I'm sworn to protect. Yeah. Makes a lot of sense. And then you 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 add that to the element of Damon being made vulnerable by his brother inflicting this wound to his pride and his 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 familial love from beyond the grave. And I think you got all the ingredients from for just an emotional cocktail in the scene. Yeah, it's got a garnish with prosciutto (laughs) (laughs) and you've got the perfect drink. So bitter. Uh called the insecure targ is that drink um (laughs) gary v from houston texas i want to touch on something that damon kept bringing up in this episode and that is the advantage they have when the dragons uh, are in numbers uh, or having the dragon numbers and being the key to winning the war while he does mention that they have to work to do in in, and getting their current riderless dragons mounted once that's complete the drag the blacks will have a near four to one dragon advantage over the greens and the number of adult dragons but one thing he didn't seem to consider was what was made more evident by the end of the episode was how little that numbers advantage means when the other side has vagar germ and the creative force behind both hot d and game of thrones have consistently used the analogy that dragons are the weapons of mass destruction of this universe I thought I'd run with that analogy to comparing the advantage of the, the blacks have in their numbers. If dragons are nukes, then the blacks have a considerable stockpile of traditional nuclear weapons. Uh, atomic fission powered bombs, while certainly immensely destructive, usually have an explosive yield in a dozen or so kilotons in terms of TNT uh, to a few hundred kilotons. While the greens have fewer of these in their stockpile, they also have the only thermonuclear hydrogen fusion-powered bomb on their table with an explosive yield in the megatons, which is an order of magnitude bigger than the kilotons. That's the advantage of having Vagar, uh, and it's what gives the greens uh, the advantage, what balances out their numbers, uh, the numerical advantage that the, the blacks have. 
The blacks do have some of the larger bombs and do have the higher yields in a few hundred kilotons, maybe even the lower yield H-bombs, older dragons like Caraxes and Vermithor, but they don't have the Castle Bravo that is Vagar. I guess that's like a big, the, the, the Zara bomb. Uh, to me, it seems like going into Dance of Dragons uh, that both sides are more evenly matched than Damon's letting on in terms of dragon might. You you're, you're a, you got a strategic tactical mind. What's your what's your take on this? Uh, I mean, we've said it already, right? Like one dragon can only be in one place. Fourteen dragons can be in fourteen places. So use that use that to your advantage. Now the I, I don't know. I, I'm curious how the show is going to portray this imbalance in the size of the dragons because yes Vagar is a big dragon but my question is could Vagar just fly to Dragonstone and burn it to the ground yes. dragons be damned like just just fly oh. to Dragonstone 14 dragons in the sky I don't give a shit because you're all smaller than me I'm just gonna fly in here and I'm gonna melt your fucking castle and then you're done clearly the show can't do that so how yes. so, so how valuable is the size disparity I'm, I'm still not certain because we've seen one of the smallest dragons breathe fire at Vagar and it did nothing. Yeah. I want to see a dragon that's like three quarters the size of Vagar go up against Vagar and see if there's an actual one-to-one match because that'll be that that'll tell me so much, right? Yeah, and I think that there's there's this really interesting size comparison that's floating around that shows uh-huh. like all of the canonical dragons like from Balerion to Black Dread to the last house cat sized dragon that Targaryens squeeze out um, uh, uh, after, you know, the the events of the dance. Uh, And it seems to me that like Caraxes, Melees, um, uh, 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 Cyrax, uh, Vermithor um, are anywhere between a a third to a half the size. And Vermithor might be more of like three quarters the size of Vagar. And to me... Um, if I was looking at that, I'm like, well, yeah, it might take three or four dragons and you might lose them all. But surely if you can, if you committed a sizable force of dragons to Vagar, you could take Vagar off the map. Mm-hmm. And then they've got what? Two fully grown, like quote unquote, fully grown, grown dragons, which are several, which is still like half the size of the main adult dragons of how. So like if, if you can take them off the map, then you've got just a straight numerical advantage over them. So, right. and as you mentioned, Vagar can only be at one place. Like if you, in, in your, right, right. if you, in your strat, in your uh, tale of the bombs, if you had two nations with 20 main cities, would you rather have the one overkill bomb that can absolutely wipe a right. city off the map, but then you're done. Then mm-hmm. you're done. Then you have to you have to lose 14 of your cities because you got no, no way to defeat that. Or would you rather have 14 smaller bombs that can? I yeah, I I don't know. It seems yeah, obvious no, you'd rather have the the numerical advantage in that case because like how much? How, what does overkill get you in this in this case? Mm-hmm. Now this is why I'm uh, so fascinated to see how like I said the logistics play out in this war because yeah, it's, it's a fascinating topic for me anyway. Yeah, and I, that's the thing. It's like, you know, we always talk about Balerion um, the Black Dread roasting Hall. I don't know that Caraxes could roast the Red Keep. It's it's sizable. It's just, the Red Keep is fucking huge. It's, it's big. <laughs> it's like, like it's and it's not like a dragon can just pump out fire 24-7. Like, it's got to be like burst damage. Like, I think Balerion, who is even bigger than Vagar, you look at Vagar compared to like, 
the keep of um, Storm's End, I think a dragon like Vagar could roast a castle in like an hour without trying very much. But Caraxes and Cyrax, they'd have mm-hmm. to huff and puff and probably eat and recharge and uh, the whole time you're raining sc- scorpion bolts at it and you got other dragons tearing. Like, I, yeah, I, I, I think that a lot of people are like, oh, a dragon can just melt the castle. I don't think any old dragon can do it. I think it's telling that only Balerion did it. And it yeah. was the biggest, biggest, most formidable castle. So fair enough. But like, I don't think that any old dragon, certainly Jace's dragon couldn't, couldn't roast a keep. No, no, no. All right. David says, it seems to me the weakest part of the dragon is the rider on its back. Well, unless it's going against <laughs> Vagar, in which case the whole thing is a jello cup. If a dragon rider can get another dragon on his side, could it follow him into battle? Basically have a second dragon as a wingman that follows the direction set by the dragon at the rider. It's two separate questions here. Um, and we know that dragons can carry multiple people. Do you think that there, like, do you, there, there might be like you get a crossbowman or two on the back of a dragon with the dragon rider. So you're sure. essentially you're, you're kind of emulating bomber strategy from world war two. <laughs> that seems, that seems like riding on the back of a tank with a slingshot. <laughs> I mean, but you're targeting you are... the rider, not the dragon. Okay. The sure, crossbows are trying seems... to take out the rider, not the dragon. Wow. That seems hard. That seems yeah. exceptionally hard. Yeah, like it's one thing to be mounted on a horse and take a shot at somebody on the ground. It's another to be flying, dip, dodge, diving and ducking in the air. Yeah. yeah. And shooting at another dragon rider that's doing the same. I, yeah. Whew. Maester Anthony it, in, her, in, her, in Maester's Corner has an interesting dragon theory about the commands um, that you guys might be interested in when we get to that point. But like the other thing is we saw with Danny that she's able to roughly coordinate an attack between with three dragons that she's in the lead and the other two are just kind of like following along but that's a pretty unique situation because you've got brother dragons that have bonded to Danny as their mother Mm -hmm. and it's not like you know you've got a dragon rider who just sidles up to another big dragon and is like hey I want you to ride be essentially my wingman I don't know if that 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 Dana situation might be unique, but it also is a way that like shows that like, yeah, dragons, especially if they're just fucking shit up, something that dragons like to do anyway, that you might be able to go like, OK, I'm going to have one dragon rider and two unclaimed dragons, and we're just going to try to get them to go to a battle and breathe fire everywhere. But boy, I would not want to be on the allied side on the ground. Sure. Uh, yeah, it I, seems like I don't know. I mean, dragons have obviously their own agency. And you could probably tell a dragon, hey, here's what we're trying to accomplish and come come fly with us without having a rider. And it would still do a a fair job of fighting, I would think. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like, why can't a dragon fight without riders? There's nothing that says it can. Right. I mean, maybe in the books (laughs) there is, but it's just it's just out. It just be it wouldn't have any you would have no control over it at all. Like. You know, well, clearly you can you can talk to dragons some sure. in some way, right? Like you can tell them to Dracaris, you can True. you can bring them to heal, you can do all sorts of things. So why not just tell them like, "Hey, uh, Arax, go over there and kill that thing." And yeah, you wouldn't like, have immediate direct control over right. it in that process, but it would have a goal. Yeah, 
Yeah, and I'm thinking of like, okay, so if you had like one side that has two or three dragons, one of them riderless, or two of them riderless, and the other side had three dragons, all of them ridered. It seems oh, like that there'd side be an advantage. Be yeah. Yeah, because sure. like the other thing is like you tell Arax to go over there and fuck this shit up. But like what if Arax starts taking a stray arrow from another formation? Does it just like uh-huh. does it like, oh, I got to obey my orders or does it dragons gone to dragon, you know? Sure. No, I, I think it'd be much more effective to have riders, but I don't know why a dragon couldn't fight without a rider. Um, we will probably get the answers to some of these questions. Like, what is it? What does all this look like mm-hmm. in, in the seasons ahead? Uh, Virgilio in Corona says, I think it's worth Monday morning quarterbacking the logic of Rhaenyras to send away both sons as messengers. It makes sense to send Jace. He's older and has the weight of being known in the crown, uh, to be in the crown lineage for a while. But why send Luke or moreover only Luke, the Stormbreakers Bay, especially empty handed and with a message from the queen seeking that they honor their oaths. Why not send, uh, Reyna or at least have Reyna accompany Luce, uh, uh, Luke. The Valerians already have discussed their plan to blockade the Narrow Sea. Maybe sharing those plans with the Baratheon Lord would persuade him which side to choose. Certainly a blockade would be costly to the Stormlands, and the Lady of Driftmark would be better suited to convey this message. I think he might be saying uh, Rhaenys here. Rhaenys. Of course, Luke was... Luke was just reaffirmed to inherit the Driftwood seat so he could also speak to the blockade. They probably needed to make sure he was prepped to discuss that, uh, though. So, out of all the criticism here... I do think it's interesting that Rhaenyra is going to the Baratheons with just an offer of like, hey, remember your oaths when mm-hmm. maybe she should be saying we have 14 dragons. They have four. We have the largest fleet in the realm and we are going to blockade King's Landing. By the way, you're the next bay over. You're in that blockade, too. And we're going to starve you fuckers out like, <laughs> you know, it's not it's not quite speaking softly. It's definitely threatening the big stick. Yeah. But yeah. Why not? She doesn't want to. She doesn't really want to start a war here, right? What she's trying to do is is gather support, so maybe she can figure out if there's a war that even needs to be fought. And right. I feel like coming in with a threat is threatening to start a war preemptively. Yeah. Um, and the second thing, like uh, about Luke being sent out, I, I didn't like this choice either. I thought it was a super naive choice from her, but it's one that she's making as kind of a mother letting a child be independent. And it's a bad time to do that because shit's going crazy right now. But she she's trying to let Luke become a man here. Um, and then that's a big part of why she lets him go. Because otherwise, yeah, it's a, it's a bad decision. And like from the Monday morning quarterbacking aspect of it, like we said, it's like it is kind of crazy from Teen Green's perspective that they let Vagar get out into the open because if Rhaenyra and Damon just do the Targaryen thing and go over to King's Landing in mass with their dragons, they're all dead. There's nothing mm-hmm. they can do to stop that. Vagar is the only thing that could save them, and they sent it away to the next town over to treat with this guy. Yeah. Um, that's crazy too. Like that could have gone if 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 Rhaenyra wasn't as restrained as she was in this episode, that could have. Uh, backfired drastically. King's Landing might be ash, but the war's over, and you rebuild King's Landing, and there you go. Um, so yeah, yeah I wonder I, how that's going to factor into future decisions too, because like you would assume that they would keep Vagar at King's Landing, and the fact right. that they didn't keep keep it there means you know you could maybe assume they won't always keep it there as the 
protection they need. But you never but you, know. But, but right. But if he happens to be like, if you show up for your attack and he happens to be there, you're kind of screwed unless you have like all your dragons. Yeah. So you you kind of either keep... it forces you to either commit more forces to a king's landing attack than you might need because Vegar right. might not be there, or it forces you to be super hesitant about even sending anything to King's Landing in the first place. And you can't like fly by and fly over and see because like Vagar could be like we know that the dragon <laughs> right. pit's big enough for Balerion, so you can get Vagar in there. And oh wow! She okay. can. We saw how long it take melees to go from not in the sky to in the sky. Of course, she Kool Aid banned her way through, but <laughs> you open yeah. up the dro- doors and like what you could get a dragon in the sky in like a minute or two if you needed to. And mm-hmm. but that's also a lot of pressure for Aemon because he's essentially got to be ready to fly at a moment's notice the entire time. Like true. he is the air defense of King's Landing. That's like I said, there's a lot. It's a lot of things to consider. It's going to be interesting. Uh, Allie, as always, thanks for your coverage of the show. Aaron, why it sounds Eamon's reaction post familiacide made you like him less. It actually made me stop hating him as a vehement member of Team Black. I'd like to come. I've really come to despise the young man and his beautiful wig. But his response humanized him in a way that I found distinctly lacking from Team Green. Either one, he feels really bad. We've seen a ton of posturing from Amond. He has a major victim complex from his childhood and clearly a lot of anger issues. But it reminds us that ultimately they were both still children. I think Amond saw himself in as an aggrieved badass, but never the villain and just watched himself cross over that line. This is the first taste of real irrevocable consequences of war. He's in shock. And I think he is even more traumatized by the fact that the final act was out of his control. Or he just got carried away on his revenge fantasy and doesn't necessarily regret killing his young nephew, but is savvy and pragmatic enough to be horrified by what he's begun. Clearly, I'm more compelled by the first option, but both give him some interesting shading. I feel like I've taken for granted that at this uh, every point that he would have killed the strong boys or maimed them or taken their eye given the chance. But his desperate attempts to pull Vagar back make me wonder if he's always would have wound up staying his hand once granted the validation respect he sought. Hmm. Um, I think I, I assumed he was a full on Damon, but I forgot he's still just a kid trying to prove himself and maybe wasn't that far gone yet. Very sad all around. I, I can agree with that much. Um, yeah, yeah, totally. It's it's the Baratheon Hall scene, too. Like, it's a one-two thing here, right? It's not just right. the oops, I bit him in half thing. It's the, I demand you take out your eye, and when you obviously say no, because nobody's actually going to volunteer that, to take out right. their own eye, he's immediately ready to go fight him. And he, like he yeah. says, the fight would be no challenge, so he's ready to kill him. So... I mean, I maybe he's not ready to kill him. Maybe he's ready to put him in his place and show him that he could kill him at any time. Because, like, do you think when when Amon rushes Luke after Luke says, no, I'm not taking out my eye, that he is going to kill Luke? Or is he just going to whip his ass a little bit and show him Probably. that he could? Probably. I because I think I, I mean I don't I wonder what Eamon would do if you just gave him a sincere apology and I know that Jace came close to that with his toast to the two brothers but it's more like yeah I, was... you know like I, I enjoyed our youth together and I hope we can be friends where like Eamon could fairly say I didn't I was bully ball you fuckers fuck you fuck you fuck you in particular like he, that wasn't quite like you know what Eamon we weren't very fair to you 
Mm-hmm. You were a late bloomer. You got the biggest dragon. Props to you, man. I'm sorry about how the I worked out. Like I, I we were just kids. Um, I wish I could take it back. Uh, I, I wonder if like at any time in the last 10 years that he had gotten something like that from any of his family, if he'd have turned out differently. But like, yeah, maybe he just wants to be heard again. Yeah. At this point, he's a bit of a school shooter. So fuck him. Um, right, he can still right. be a problematic fave, but this is <laughs> this is a bad look, as they say. Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, no, I I, I, um, I I think it's interesting that like you came in hating him. I came in kind of admiring him as a villain mm-hmm. and like the 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 event kind of transposed our feelings. I think that's super interesting to see how that happens. Yeah. Caitlin says, I heard an instant take. You said you disagreed with Damon having Caraxes there when questioning the loyalty of the Kingsguard and that it didn't make sense. What answer did you expect from them? When I was watching this scene, however, I got the serious vibes from Game of Thrones Season 7, Episode 5, East March, where Daenerys is standing in front of all the lords and soldiers of Westeros after hashtag the loot train and gave them was essentially a surrender or die speech. She said, I offer you a choice. Bend the knee and join me. Together, we'll leave the world a better place than we found it or refuse and die. Here, Daenerys ends up commanding Drogon to burn uh, Randall and Dickon Tarly. Both of their choice not to bend the knee, as Randall said, I already have a queen. I went back to check the archives to see what you had to say about it then. Uh-oh. She's roasting me with my own words. <sighs> Damn. From your Eastwatch instant take around 11 minutes in, Aaron says, Can I just say, I didn't have a real problem with Danny roasting Dickon and Randall. Like, they wanted this to be some monstrous thing, and I'm like, well, she says, kneel, you shits. Aaron, why did you think you were okay with Danny's choice and Drogon as a quick death, but not with Damon offering this choice and Caraxes as a quick death. Do you, do you want to respond before I, I do try? I'm curious about what you defend you. Yeah. I just see what you, what you have. <laughs> if you can spot any differences or if I'm just crazy. I mean, the, I, I, the big difference here is that there's already been an oath taken and it's a reaffirmation of it. Um, Whereas that that was that was not true with the Danny stuff, right? Boy, it's been a while. Um, yeah, you've so, got enemy soldiers that have already declared against you and have taken up yeah. arms and fought, and you're granting them clemency versus professionals that have sworn to defend your royal line and were loyal to your dad, who went to his grave saying that you should be the queen. And mm-hmm. threatening them. And also, I think you're supposed to understand that these are kind of her sworn shields. Like, they're the ones that hang out on uh-huh. Dragonstone. And then yep. taking these professional men and questioning their loyalty for no damn good reason. Yeah, at gunpoint, essentially. Yeah, it's that's the difference I spot. Yeah. It's like, one is like, you're not questioning whether they would take up arms. They've already done it. And you're essentially offering to spare them. If they bend the knee, these guys are you're preemptively threatening and bullying them when they've given you no reason to, you know, uh, think that they would, you know, and I, I get the value of like, like really make an impression on somebody. But like these are smart men. They've been around Damon there, you know, for most of his life. And they've seen like you got to ask him like it's like it's like when what, what Tywin went back and said, any man that has to say that I'm a king mm-hmm. is no king. Like any any Targaryen has to say, I will pay back treachery with fire and blood. It just looks crazy weak. It looks crazy weak and insecure, sure. which is kind but of Damon's. I was going to say this is also Damon, right? It's so, part of his characterization. Yeah, yeah, uh, I, I can see it. 
doesn't make it it doesn't make it a more effective strategy it just makes it like you know Damon being Damon makes it an understandable scene I guess uh Megan says just want to give a shout out to what a badass episode 10 was for the ladies of team black a couple of times people remarked how Rhaenyra was her father's daughter ruling as he would and she might have even said it once but I think that statement really sells Rhaenyra short. She dealt with the loss of her father, the throne, yeah. stillborn baby after incredibly difficult delivery and her son in a matter of days. And she still had her head on and was thinking very, very clearly about her next steps. Mm-hmm. You can't say the same for Viserys, who never experienced those subsequent blows that she did and still basically shut down in response to grief. He really was not able to rule it uh in those moments and she was mere hours after brutal labor and childbirth. You go, girl. This is an important point because totally. Every time Otto would try to bring him back to the table, it's like, hey, there's matters before you. How Are dare you vultures pick at me when I'm in my grieving? And now. And when he was OK, he was just like, Are we done with this meeting? Are we can we yes. get out of here? Yeah. I will say in Viserys defense that the realm was at peace. It was not in the middle of a uh, the, the, sure, a, sure. a, uh, a full on rebellion. Um, so he has the like, you know, maybe the right to say, good Christ, can we just do this tomorrow? I just buried my wife and stillborn child. Fuck you people. And maybe like I'm tr- I'm trying to think what Rhaenyra would be like if she is just crown queen and what Damon and the maester were bringing to her is like, you know, we've been putting off the matter of whether we should raise the sales tax on imports in the King's uh, landing Harbor by two or 3%. And she's just gone through all this shit. Do you really think she would like put on her queen's hat and be like, okay, yeah, let's get, she might say something similar, Mm. but yeah, no, she's twice as strong as Viserys is as as far as I can tell. But Viserys never was tested either. Like he, he said of his own admission, if if he was, if, if the realm was plunged in the civil war over Ama's death, I wonder Mm -hmm. how he would have reacted. He might probably wonder the same. Yeah. It's a good question. Uh, He never felt like he had an intentionality that, that she does here. Her intention is to keep the realm from breaking down, uh, try and try and preserve peace. His was simply just to be there as a King, like just say, I'm the King. I don't know. I don't know what his intention was. He didn't seem to have much of one. Also, I love the subtle themes of women empowering other women here. Rhaenys finally declaring for Rhaenyra felt like that moment. She couldn't rule herself because of a long-standing Westerosi sexism, even though she clearly is the best person in the room to be doing it. So she puts all of her energy into supporting another woman. I also love the moment where Rhaenyra walks into the room with the painted table after just being crowned, where her supporters are waiting to discuss battle tactics, and she nods to both Bela and Reyna to come to her to the table with her, literally bringing the next generation of women to the table in a male-dominated society. Um, yeah, I agree. Yeah, Dragon there's Walk- a shot there that I noticed of that, too. Yeah. They show them flanking her in that moment. Yeah, she's not pulling the ladder up behind her. Uh, Dragon Walker says, okay, I have a different theory on why Damon went psycho on Rhaenyra over the prophecy. Everyone thinks he was never told by Viserys. I think he wasn't told, but found out in one of those books in the library in Pintos. Remember in the books how Rhaegar read something in one of the books that he was constantly reading that told him that he had to learn to become a warrior to fulfill this prophecy. Hmm. Did Damon find the same sort of passage? Is that what was making him so morose prior to Lena's death? Not only was he having classic war based post-traumatic stress, but then he found out he'd have to go save Planetos. Is he flash angry because he didn't want Rhaenyra to know about it or because he hoped Viserys hadn't told her? He wanted he wanted to be the one to face the others or at least protect the Targaryen name until that came. 
it's uh, a lot of speculation. I'm I'm yeah. I'm not seeing it, but I haven't read the books, so I don't know. And I don't know if it changes things. Like it makes it more of ambition rather than wounded pride, you know, or, or wounded little brother. But um, I don't know if it changes how I feel about the scene. She also wants to know what will happen with the dagger. Will Rhaenyra remember that she read the prophecy on it? Not that this fact will mean much, but the imbecile boy, uh, Aegon, who doesn't read or speak Valerian, uh, I'm intrigued to how that dagger is going to get the little finger. I'm insanely certain that this show is going to track this dagger very closely. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Like, it feels like this is going to be one of the threads, along with maybe the prophecy of A Song of Ice and Fire, that unifies all of these anthologies and Jon Snow sequels and Egg Duncan Egg sequels and Namiria. Hell, Namiria might show up with this fucking blade, bringing sure. it to Dorne, bring it to Westeros for, for for the first time. Who knows? Um, Lord Kurt from House Connors has a dire warning for you, my liege. He says, "Your Grace, Kim Jim Harris, Tiberius Targaryen, King of the Bald Movers, Protectors of the Pod." I hope this raven finds you in good health and reaches you in good standing. All right, to you with grave news regarding the twins in your king's guards, sirs Aaron and Eron Hubbard. It comes to my attention that one of these brothers has partaken in traitorous actions. I am, as of this writing, unsure as to which is the treasonous and treacherous twin. Nonetheless, this perfidious twin has been known to take seditious acts such as spreading false rumors about Lord Eddard Stark throwing away his life to preserve his honor, whereas he actually makes a false confession in an attempt to spare himself and his daughters. He's been known to speak sympathetically of Team Green. He conspired to have Prince Jim receive a Team Green t-shirt instead of Team Black. Uh Uh-huh. And according to my source, Mushroom Steve, he has been having weekly meetings with his cousin, Maester Anthony. Who knows what betrayals they're nursing. God knows the king's not listening to any of that shit either. And we're I, completely safe in our corner. He's never going to tune in for more book lore. I, I uh, hear that Maester is uh, partial to feet as well. Oh, <laughs> he has a knowledge of he has he has certain seemingly certain knowledge of future events. Is he a green seer? Keep your wits about you during these disreputable times. You know, uh, <laughs> uh, bring him before me. I'm going to put them both to the sword. I don't care what? which is which. Yeah, both to the sword. Forget it. Well, we'll see how season two goes without me. <laughs> uh, I appreciate I appreciate the warning and, and fair point about Ned. I I do. I'm a little too hater on Ned. I think um, he I, he did. He took nine steps towards the noose with his loyalty, and he took one step back at the end with his you know craven uh, mm-hmm. uh, confession. But like, <laughs> was yeah, craven? you're right. It was. It was noble, wasn't it? I, yeah, take the wall, take the black, go to the wall, spare your spare your family and your daughters and all that stuff. It's like I know I think it's I think it's a smart thing. It's 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 a politically yeah, smart yeah. thing for him to do. Yeah, sure. And then Joffrey steps in, dumbass. And Joffrey, Joffrey's Joffrey. Ugh. Mike says I'm a non-book reader here, and I appreciate the insights Aaron gives on the podcast from the books. I also frequent Reddit, where I see the green versus black side taking amongst fans go in the full-on flame war mode. Mm-hmm. Being a non-book reader, I feel the show definitely tilted in favor of Team Black. Do you guys think it might be a strategy of the writers' room to alternate which side the show favors every other season? We leave the season with Rhaenyra's vengeful look on what will undoubtedly take her to leading some heinous retribution on the Greens next season, which may bring Team Black or may, might make Team Black looking like cruel antagonists right off the bat. 
Could it be possible that it's an aim of the writer's room to flip-flop the general audience's sympathies with one side of the war to the other as the show goes on through the years? Might be a cool way to tell the story and definitely keep the fandom engaged. What do you think? I can see it. I mean, the way they played season one, I was I was flip-flopping on people all the time. I was like, well, in this episode, they did this shitty thing. and this ne- next episode, they apologized for it, and they were you know, kind and generous, and then, oh, they're shitty again. So... Yeah, they've done that with individuals. I think that will be a strategy because it just keeps it exciting, right? Like, I don't, I think it would get boring if you had one clear side to root for the entire time. Yeah. Uh, It's, it's, you know, frankly, it's what I loved about uh, Breaking Bad too, is like, yeah, I'm, I'm rooting for Walter White in certain ways and I'm rooting against him in others. And yeah, which one of those competing interests is going to win out ultimately, but honestly, in any given episode. Um, So, yeah, I, I think that's, a likely plan. Yeah. And, and George got to start writing for kind of like soapy, you know, dramatic, mm. melodramatic mm-hmm. television shows. And I think he's got, you know, I talked about how I'm trying to be pro, just, just be very leal this season. And if it backfires in my face, I got a face full of shit. I'm just going to go into Vince McMahon and just inflame people. I think there's a little bit of Vince McMahon in Germ. I think he like when I'm looking at fire and blood, it's like, yeah, he he knows that he's got to keep both sides kind of engaged in the atrocity game and the who, what about it. And he's a keen student of human and he and he knows how to play us like a fiddle. So, mm-hmm. like, I think, yeah, I, I think this, this, this green and black stuff is going to rage for for seasons on. Yeah, this week he said that he's three quarters of the way done with winds of winter. He knows how to fucking play us. Are you kidding right. me? The Internet yeah. lit up with another shitstorm about his yep. stupid book that he hasn't written in 15. Whatever. <laughs> he knows how to play us. Yeah. Yeah. And just like, you know, and you'll have you'll have the email that's like, oh, I might be team green. But like what Eamon did this week was blah, blah, blah. And is that going to cool things down? No, it'll just it'll just be red meat to the blacks. It'll be treason <laughs> through the greens. And then you'll have a black being like, you know, I, I know what's going. But like, you know, Rainier was just went too far. to, And is that mm-hmm. going? No, fuck. No, it's there's nothing. Nothing can nothing. It's it's the life. Real life is like the show. There's nothing that we can do to stop the fans from being at their throat. At, at this point yeah <laughs> so we'll we'll see there's still lots of hot d to talk about we'll be back right after the break and now back to hot d michael b says hey guys uh i was wondering aaron how the fire and blood book is written or how it's written gives us in any insight in how the civil war might end for example, in the reaction episode last night, Aaron said the book tells us Eamon purposely killed Luke. To me, that says Team Black may end up on top after the show is over or the war is over. Because if the Greens win, surely they'd include their in their side that the dragon acted on its own and was a horrible mistake. The book by Gurm is supposed to be a collection of tales by the Maesters. Does that not mean we'll be hearing the history from the point of view of the winners? This is true, but you got to ask yourself, do the winners want their main protagonist to look like he's weak and ineffectual and can't control his dragons and it was just all an accident? Or do they want to say that our king or our uh, prince legally took action to defend his brother sitting on the crown from these treacherous bastards that were trying to usurp? Which is the more compelling winner's tale? Yeah, and it's my understanding that it's not just Maesters giving their two cents, right? I mean, when you yeah, talk about you mushroom fools, all the time, you have you competing got views. Got, yeah. So, 
you know, in a situation where there are competing views, there are competing interests shaping those views. And I think they, you know, that, that could all lend some doubt to the, the Vince as well. Also, I'm going to spoil the ending for uh, 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 Hot D right now. You know who wins? House Targaryen. Do you know who loses? House Targaryen. <laughs> it's their... Okay. No matter what happens, yeah, yeah. Targaryens continue to sit on the throne up until the time of Robert's Rebellion. This mm-hmm. is a historical fact. So, like, d- how do you shit on the sides when it's the same side? And especially when you're 200 years hence and your maesters are looking at it and, like... I, I so it's it's not as straightforward as you think. It's not like this is going to be over and then it's like this war is going to be over and it's going to sit for 170 years and then some maester is going to take it upon himself to do uh, an unvarnished true telling, which is hila- it's super hilarious in context of the series. I got to say. Well, here's a question for you about the books. When when were they supposed to have been written in the timeline of the Game of Thrones universe? Are they contemporary with the events? I believe they written... the Maester's forward says this is for like Joffrey's name day or something. Let me see. Oh, wow. Uh, so they're written 200 years after. Yeah, they literally are. But, so, but they're so based all the mushroom on... accounts are based on what? Like writings that he did? Yeah. Yeah. Or... Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, they're, ba- they're essentially based on the, pre- the, the history books that came before. Um, okay. Okay. Actually, I can't so... find it. I thought there was a Maester's preface where they made it explicit that this was written... So it is written by the Maesters. Gotcha. It's written by the Maesters. Um, and I can I, I might be able to find this information later, but I, I thought maybe I'm thinking of the world of ice and fire that that was the one that was dedicated to uh, Joffrey. But yeah, I, I think it's gotcha. it's contemporary to the Game of Thrones. OK. Shlomo says, will dragons willingly fight each other in a Game of Thrones? We only saw the ice dragon on the side against other dragons, but that doesn't seem like the same thing as two living dragons fighting. I don't know if the dragons are more loyal to the riders or to each other. We've already seen the dragons are thinking and feeling creatures as we saw when Vagar wouldn't just Dracaris Lena. Even though she was asking for it, her dragon hesitated and looked very unsure of itself before finally proceeding. This shows that the dragons just don't blindly follow the riders' commands, but also have their own opinions about what is right or wrong. Early foreshadowing, by the way. With that being established, would a dragon attack another dragon, being that it might be a sibling, cousin, or other family member? You know what? Maester and Anthony and I have a full conversation about this, so let's go ahead and kick off the final Maester's Corner. All right, Anthony, welcome back to the Maester's Corner. Glad to be back. Thank you. I have... This is so, like, I want to share something with class, essentially. This isn't, like, something ground-shaking. This is Mm. uh, something that, like, I... Every once in a while, when I'm reading through the lore, uh, because I'm a a uh, self-described lore whore, I get these like really pleasant connections because the one strength of uh, George Martin's writing styles, gardens, gardening style is like there's just so much depth through some things. And you get to these points where it's like, you know, I've read a lot in the Game of Thrones era now reading House of Fire or House of the Dragon, Fire and Blood. Mm-hmm. And you just make these connections where like lights pop off like, oh, this is a big world that spans all this history. Um, the thing that started me to the, on, on, on this path this week is, you know, um, Damon and Rhaenyra are counting their close allies to Dragonstone. And they mention right. the Masseys, 
uh, and the Darklands came up. And I'm like, you know, usually when you hear a great house in Westeros, I've been around this place long enough that I immediately have something hit my ear. And I'm like, oh, I might not know exactly, but I've heard of them before. The Darklands? I've never fucking heard of Darklands. What's going on? Interesting. Um, but I had heard of the dust, the, the Darklands. And I know you've heard of the Darklands. It's just always been couched in something else. Uh, the Defiance of Duskendale. Have you ever heard of this? Uh, well, you know, I'm a little... Now that you say that, it kind of rings a bell, but I I couldn't tell you why it rings the bell. Right, right. It's, this was fascinating. It's like one is like, now you know the rest of the story. Because like, if I ask you, what was the straw that broke the realm's camel's back when it came to the Mad King? Like, what event what what thing did he do that like wow fuck this we're we're calling our banners and we're going to war do you do you do you have in your head uh the the terminal event of king eris's reign not i'm not talking about jamie stabbing him i'm saying what caused the rebellion no i mean if you were going to ask me that i'd probably point to like the the death of ned's father was kind of like a motivator for ned but i couldn't tell you what like the entire realm I think that's I think that's it. Like, you know, I, I guess if you want to back it up, it'd be like, uh, you know, uh, uh, Rhaegar running off with Lyanna. But the thing that actually right. caused the realm to take a step back and be like, this has gone too far is the fact that Eris burned Rickard uh, and his son, Brandon, I believe, uh, Ned's older brother, uh, right. Right, alive in, in, in front of him in court. The first straw on the camel's back is the defiance of Duskendale. Uh, so Duskendale, um, I mentioned on the podcast, is like there's this crab claw-shaped bay that is Blackwater Bay, and it right. uh, holds Dragonstone, holds Driftmark. Duskendale is one of the big fortresses that's on the the kind of the, you know, in the middle of the crab claw, and it commands um, a, a wide array of, of, of Blackwater Bay. And mm. this used to be the port the port in Westeros. This was the seat of kings. This was a center of trade. And mm-hmm. what happened was Aegon landed at what became known as King's Landing. And that city grew and grew and grew and just kind of sucked all the power and prestige away from Duskendale and the Darklands mm-hmm. that lived there. So around 277, uh, the Lord of, of Duskendale, uh, Dennis Darkland, you know, said, you know what? I have watched my my family's prestige and power and wealth melt away in favor of King's Landing for generations now. I'm going to put a stop to it. Uh, I'm going to petition Tywin Lannister to make Duskendale like um, an independent zone a, 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 and, and, and have a charter. Like, I want what Dorne got 100 years ago. I want right. an independent charter that allows us to regain our regality, have more say in our taxation, all that kind of stuff. Tywin Lannister says no. He's the hand of the king. The the the, the right. Well, we now know is mad, but the perfectly reasonable King Eris. Uh, <laughs> and uh, Dennis says, "Well, this is crap. I want to personally treat with the king." And there was already a rift between Tywin and Eris. Um, Eris wanted to distance himself from the hand because he thought he's got a little bit too big for his britches. And uh, he says, "You know what? I'm going to go. I'm going to go meet with this Dennis guy myself." And he goes there, he has a very small honor guard, just one single member of the King's Guard, and Eris shows up and Dennis kidnaps him and decides, I'm going to hold the King hostage until I get what I want. Tywin doesn't take this lying down and grabs a, a sizable force and lays siege to the castle for some six months. 
Um, and he says, and Dennis is like, okay, I'm going to like, yeah, this is ugly, but I've got the king. I got him as a hostage, and I'm going to get I'm going to get terms for my people. Tywin says, I'm going to if you don't let the king go tomorrow, I'm going to take this castle by force and kill everyone inside. Um, implication being that, like, maybe I don't even care if the king lives through it or not. Um, Sir Barristan Selmy, young Sir Barristan Selmy, at the start of his career, hears this and tells Tywin's, like, please let me try to rescue the king. And if I can't do it, then you can go forward the invasion. But let me try to, like, with minimum bloodshed, Tywin yeah. says you got 24 hours. Now, you probably heard this story. Young Barristan Selmy uh, dresses up like a beggar, infiltrates right. the outer walls of Duskendale, goes yes. to the keep, um, which I think is the, the, the Dusk Fort, uh, scales those walls, slays the person that killed the king's guardian in single combat, rescues the king, fights his way down through the castle, and right before they can close the portcullis. Is that what they call it? Is it portcullis or portcullis? No, portcullis, yeah. The portcullis. Right before they, he he steals a horse and mad dashes Eris out through the gate. Rescues it, saves the day. Um, So Eris, at the end of this, is completely wroth. And he decides that he's going to make example of the Darklands at Duskendale. And he slaughters this house every man woman and child down to the extent that there's a cadet house called the hollards that is kind of like the way the car starks are a cadet branch of the starks you know they've like it's a distant relation eris is like too much too much uh darkland blood in here for me and he kills everyone in house hollard except for barristan selmy falls to his knees before the king and says please 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 there's this 12 year old boy who had nothing to do with this. It'd be unjust if you kill him. And Eris is like, damn, this dude just saved my life. I'd look like an enormous asshole if I don't mm. let him have this boon. He rescues one Dantas Hollard, who is this hapless drunken knight who will later be made a fool by Joffrey oh, instead of yeah. killing him at his name day feast. Look at all yeah. these, look at all these connections. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. This is cited by many as the moment that Eris went mad, that he might have had some twinges of instability, but this let like made him permanently distrustful of Tywin Lannister because he's like, you're going to storm this castle and kill me rather than try to pursue peaceful terms. He also this is the the genesis of his conspiracy theory where he thought Rhaegar, his son and Tywin were planning against him to supplant him. From this day forward, he never stepped out of the Red Keep. Um, he became fearful of being touched because he was stripped of his robes, beaten. A squire pulled his beard. He had never had this kind of physical indignity. He wouldn't let right. anyone approach him with a blade except for his king's guard. So his nails grew like talons and his hair got wild and unkempt. He became the Mad King at Duskendale. Right. And Duskendale huh. is one of the banners that Rhaenyra and Damon call successfully in this episode. And that's why you've never heard of the Darklands, because they are extinct like right. that, like the reigns of Castamere by the time of Game of Thrones. And you know, I, thought, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know why cool. this has escaped me, but a lot of this I'm hearing for the fir- very first time. So well, you've heard bits and pieces, but like yeah. the whole story fitting together. And like the thing is, is this is all in George's head. This was not <laughs> anywhere near the main part of any of the stories that he wanted to tell. It's the right. post 
it's the postscript of the dance, perhaps. It's the prelude to Game of Thrones, but that's one of the reasons where even even if George never finishes the series, I don't know if you saw this, but he was giving an interview yesterday where he claims he's three, maybe three fourths of the way done through Winds of Winter. So that's why I can't ever hate him because his gardener style might infuriate you when you're waiting for him to finish this this these this massive series, but it does delight you when you're just kind of thumbing through the mm. lore at times. Mm. I do love this. I I love especially the connection. I mean, it makes sense that the the Duskendales would be one of the allies. You know, just, they're geographically closer to the the area. But oh, yeah. I I also like this because with Electric Bukaloo, we're about to embark on a Clash of Kings, and that's where we actually will meet Dantos for the first time. Exactly. And yeah. to me, he's like a throwaway character. Um, he is the last surviving member of House Hollard, which is why he is a drunkard. His entire family has been extinguished before his very eyes, if not only for a, a – and he's a young boy. He tries to yeah. squire. He tries to live up to this – reputation of the night that saved his life but how can right. how can you be barrist and sell me he can't and the pressure of living up to all that leads him to be a kind of a drunken fool and i think that what you've illustrated here is why some of this research is is rewarding because even these seemingly throwaway characters have like a family history that's either tragic or fraught or has some history with another family that yes is you know, it's 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 great that we can you know research all of this with the internet. You wonder, like like you said, it really does take a gardener's mind to put all this in motion. Because an architect um, never would. This is all extraneous no. crap. You don't need this to support your story. Why would That's you ever right. come up with it? <laughs> and George can't help himself. He, no, this is how he died. This is how Fire and Blood came in, in, into being. Right? Yes. So. All right. Well, I find that fascinating, and I especially appreciate that because we're going to be jumping into a Clash of Kings very soon. Well, say shortly. hi to Dantas when you see him. <laughs> Guy needs a hug. <laughs> okay. This is fantastic. Now, I, for me, for my section, I need to put a little disclaimer on this because it required me to go and grab some Martin quotes and, you know, some obscure bits of history because I'm going to be talking about the blood magic that is involved with dragon binding. You have to, because this is, uh, it's like, you know, I keep telling people there are not a lot of firm answers. George yeah. has been deliberately cagey about a lot of this. Yes. Stuff. So I've, I, I, what I've done is I've, I've come up with, a couple interesting bits, and then at the end of this, I will reveal, Aaron, for the very first time, for the benefit of our listeners, Maester Anthony's three rules about dragons. So this is, uh, this is original content that's never been heard before, and we will see how well I do. All okay. Right. So as you know, Damon is singing to Vermithor in this episode. Mm-hmm. Now, did you uh, look and see David Peterson's translation of I, that I song? I certainly did. I got it in front of me right now. All right, fantastic. There is a line in that song that says, the price has been paid with blood magic. Yep. And this is further evidence to go to the theory that 
the original dragon riders were using some kind of dark magic to bind the dragons. And this this is sort of most clearly indicated by Marwyn. Marwyn has this quote in Feast. Marwyn tells Sam... You want to explain who Marwyn is, maybe, for the... Sure, yeah. I mean, at, at one point, Sam goes to the Citadel, and he ends up having conversations with this uh, guy, Archmaster Marwyn. Marwyn's this guy who's this world's traveler. And so he's he's not just a maester. He's kind of like a rogue maester. Because like most of the maesters are all about science. They're kind of yeah. f- frown and poo-poo ma- magic. And Marwyn's like, yeah, come to me for the deeper secrets of the, of right. the world by pupils. Yeah. Yeah, he's a little bit, he's almost discredited in the guild. But, boy, if you want to know some deep, deep, dark, magical stuff, he's the guy to go to, right? Yeah, if so. you want to forge your Valerian steel ring, which represents magic, which is kind of a laughing stuff. Yeah, he's the guy. He's the professor right. you, you, you go to. Yeah, so it means actually something uh, when it's coming from him. And here's what Marwin says to Sam. He says, what feeds a dragon's fire? All Valerian sorcery was rooted in blood or fire. Okay, so like when, like I said, when I'm building from a rickety foundation, uh, that 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 throwaway line could easily get missed. Um, but what we have in this episode, in this song that for some reason they decided not to translate, um, is this line that seems to confirm what Marwin believes about dragon binding and that there is a blood magic element involved. And the one thing we know about blood magic is, boy, there can be a price to pay for it. Sure. You might get something that you want, but you might not get... It's a little bit like a a monkey's paw deal when you do this kind of thing. So you might get a dragon to bend to your will, but I think that there's there's going to be a cost. And I think that Viserys knows something about the cost of binding to dragons. Viserys, as we've mentioned a few times, is very dragon dubious. And he, he so much so that he just decided, I, I, I rode a dragon and I'm done. I'm not doing it anymore. And I think that he knows something about the cost that, that is involved with becoming a dragon rider. This is the one that told Rhaenyra, like our control of the dragons is an illusion. Exactly. And I think that that's exactly what this last episode is playing up. So I'm going to I'm going to read you a quote from Martin. He says, you have to bond. This is a, a, a interview that he gave in Portugal about three years ago. He said, you have to bond with the dragon. There's no way you can physically intimidate a dragon to obey you. You annoy a dragon. He'll just turn his head around and roast you or bite you in half. So it takes something more than physical force. It takes this kind of psychic bond, and the precise nature of that bond is something that I'm still exploring in the world of ice and fire. So I guess the point here is that as of three years ago, Martin was still kind of playing with the idea of the psychic bond. He knows that it exists, and yet he's not sure what his gardening technique will tell him in the end. Right, so he's discovering it as we And he go. knows three years ago, shit, I'm going to have to figure this out for House 
of the dragon <laughs> exactly. because it's all about riding dragons and finding right. new ri- yeah 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 okay so here's another is from the same interview and i thought this was very interesting here's what he says about dragons he says they're very temper- temperamental beasts they represent power of course in the books i'm just going to pause there and note that he goes on to kind of do a parallel with with tolkien who, of course, has a very interesting relationship with the concept of power, right? So in in The Lord of the Rings, the ring represents power. In this world, the dragons represent power. So just keep keep that keep that in your in your back pocket as we go forward. The dragons this is Martin again. The dragons can win wars for you. That's established in the histories, but they can't necessarily produce peace or prosperity to help you rule the nation. So, so analog with the U.S. military. <laughs> it's something, <laughs> yes. You can, you can fuck shit up, but can you put shit back together and effectively rule it? And I yeah. think that this has something crucial. This this tells us something crucial about Martin's view on war. You know, Martin's an old hippie. He's an old deadhead. And he has a very interesting uh, perspective on, in other words, Martin views very few wars as being actually just wars. He thinks most of the time wars are futile, and I think I think he would like think of the war against the Night King or whatever, the war against the others as being a just war. I don't think he would consider this Bold. civil war between. <laughs> Um, yeah, no, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, if you can't go to war against the horrifying ice zombies, then I don't know. Right. Yeah, but <laughs> I don't I know can, who. You, right, I don't know. Who I, you can I go think to war that with. this actually tells us something about the way he views this this history that he's telling about the Targaryens. Whatever's going to come next, whatever war is going to happen next for these guys, this is going to be tragic. It's it's going to be a war that didn't that, that didn't need to happen. Why, why is it happening? It's because of this question about succession. Is that, you know, is the is the king or the queen's ego enough to go to war for and, and, and see millions of people die? So I think Martin's answer is no. And I think I think at the end of the day, he views dragons as machines of war and machines of conquest and not much else. All right, so that's that's the that's the argument that I'm making, and now that I'm going now that I've got that, I'm going to read you a passage about Danny. All right, this is this is Danny's connection, and we're looking at the psychic connection between Danny and Drogon in this passage. All right, All right. She would sooner have returned to Marine on Dragon's Wings, to be sure, but that was a desire Drogon did not seem to share. The dragon lords of old Valyria had controlled their mounts with binding spells and sorcerous horns. Daenerys had to make do with a word and a whip. Mounted on dragon back, she off felt as if she was learning to ride all over again. When she whipped her silver mare on the right flank, the mare went left. For a horse's first instinct is to flee from danger. When she laid a whip across Drogon's right side, he veered right, for a dragon's first instinct is always to attack. And I would just underscore that last line. 
Ah. Dragon's first instinct is always to attack. Sometimes it did not seem to matter where she struck him, though. Sometimes he went where he would and took her with him. Neither whip nor word could turn Drogon if he did not wish to be turned. The whip annoyed him more than it hurt him. And she had come to see that his scales had grown hard, harder than horn. No matter how far the dragon flew each day, come nightfall, some instinct drew him home to Dragonstone. And then Danny thinks this to herself, his home, not mine. So a couple things about that. Number one, the dragon's first instinct is to attack. I think that that might help us read some of the problem with controlling the dragons in this last episode. The second thing I want to point out is that somehow this psychic connection that Danny's starting to develop with Drogon doesn't just connect her mind to his mind in a way that bends his will. No, her mind is starting to be affected too. And I think we saw something about that with Rhaenyra's birth. You know, you kind of saw interdispersed in this episode you know, the dragon growling and her going through birth pangs. It's almost like the dragon is as much in her head as she is in the dragon's head. Right. Okay, so if that's true, now I'm gonna I'm now I'm gonna tell you my three rules. All right. So this is Maester Anthony's rule number one about dragons. Number one, dragons are beasts of war and conquest. All right. So that's my fundamental premise. Alright, that brings me to Maester Anthony's rule number two about dragons. If you are bonded to a dragon, it will obey if the command is warlike. If the command is something other than battle aggression, your dragon will be fickle. Mm. Alright, that's my second rule, and we can hear from folks to, you can email at book at baldmove.com if you have other ideas about this. All right, this brings me to my third rule, and this uh, we'll see how well I do. You can tell me if you agree with me or not. Mr. Anthony's third rule about dragons, a psychic link with a dragon makes the writer more violent. The stronger the link, the more warlike the writer becomes. So what I'm arguing is I'm saying because of the psychic link, these Targaryens are leaning into war because they're the dragons are not just getting bent to their will. They are becoming more like the dragons. And I think that we see that with Damon. We see that with Aemond. I think sure. that in this episode, we see how much these dragons are actually influencing the humans. And that, I think, is the price that is paid with the blood magic. All right. That, there you go. What do you think? I I like these. I might, um, if I was uh, not as bold a maester, I might suggest like a modification to your uh, rule two instead of like uh, making it as like the dragons are fickle or this. So like the more bellicose a command, the more eagerly a dragon will obey it. Interesting. You know? Because like, right. you know, like, like, I'm trying to explain like why Bela and Damon can essentially just do cartwheels in the sky and the dragon's like cool with it. Because it's not, you know, but they're just, you know, like the dragon, yeah, it's like, well, I don't care. I, I like flying. But like, yeah, you ask a dragon to roast somebody. It's not like it's going to like, yes, yes, you know. Yeah, I think that what we saw on the screen this last episode was 
if you start revving up those engines, those dragons will absolutely sure. floor it for you. Sure, sure. So I think what, I, there's something about that with Danny. It's like if if Danny wanted Drogon to go to war, I think I think Drogon would be very happy to do that. If she just wants him to like to ride around on him to take her places, he may obey and he may not. You know, he, he's a creature of war. That's that's what these dragons are. They're they're not taxi services, right? So, right. I I would say. Yeah, I'll just I'll read number two again. You tell me if you, you if I should reword it. So, if you are bonded to a dragon, it will obey if the command is warlike. If the command is something other than battle aggression, your dragon will be fickle. So how would how would you reword that? Oh, I was like I said like and I'm not saying you should, but I was like I would just reword it to be like the more warlike a command, the more eagerly the dragon will obey. Because like fickle makes it seem like a dragon is like his default state is not wanting to do things, and I'm like I don't know if that's what I see in the dragons is more of like they definitely enjoy yeah, doing like the war that. stuff and they're easy, but also like uh, you know there's a point like you said where it's like it seems like. And now the other thing is I think all these should be modified with like I, there's got to be some kind of individual will component like the dragon is going to influence you and you're going to influence a dragon and it's like whose will is stronger is going to determine the influence. But like I think there's a, a, on the third rule, especially, I think it's telling that, you know, Amond bonds with Vagar. The first thing he does yep. is take on all three of his nephews. And nieces. Uh, yes. And, Absolutely. And and like with vicious attacks and, you know, like he's the one that tries to kill him first. He's the one that grabs the rock and is going to bash someone's in, the head in before Luke draws the dagger. So, like, it's telling. I actually was like, oh, my God, what order did Damon choke Rhaenyra in? Did he go down and sing to Vermithor? And then, but no, I actually looked at my notes and like he choked her and then he went to sing. But I'm like, because like, man, that's yeah, but yeah, but I think I you're on something there's, there. There's something about the fact that Damon, you know, Damon is connected. Oh, da- yeah, Damon for sure. has Damon is like the most dragony guy on this show. Oh, he's, for sure. He's collecting eggs, he's into the you know, he knows the old got wings on his helmet. He's a yes. fanboy. He so because he's the most you would expect the most dragony guy on the show to be the most violent. And I think that that's what the show has told us. The other Whereas thing is like, Viserys I want to say that being like, dragon dubious. Viserys is like the king of peace because yes. he has eschewed the dragons. And they did call him. He rode the biggest, baddest one once and like, Ooh, that's enough. Um, I do want to say like on the, the price paid, I think you're onto something, but I also think there is a literal blood price to pay because I, it's very interesting that in previous episode, Damon was so excited. He's like, oh, I'm going to have three kids. And look, I got three eggs from Cyrax. What a fucking coincidence. This is amazing, right? Yeah. Like, he's all excited. Uh-huh. It's interesting to me that when you talk about all the Targaryen twisted stillbirths, the two ones that come to mind is, like, here's Rhaenyra. Yeah. Uh, the the birth of these dragon eggs does is connected to the withering of the fruit that was in her own womb. If mm-hmm. I want to be poetic about mm-hmm. it, and then the other instance of blood magic that birthed dragons into existence. Uh, Danny's uh, son with Drogo paid the price for that because we see That's that it right. was born twisted and malformed and dragony. And I was I was wondering because like Viserys talked about this. I think it's in Gorion. Uh, I think this is the huge thing that we see at the beginning where all the blood's fountain. Like, there's the center of Valeria where the priests actually did blood magic. 
And we know that Valeria was this big slave. Imp. I wonder if there wasn't just like these big pits where like the priests would just slit people's throats in mass to do these blood bindings and to create these new dragons. And the uh, Targaryens, since they were very minor dragon lords, they were at the bottom rungs of power. They didn't know how the sausage is made. They're coming over to Westeros. Yep. And like any blood magic, would, well, you, what you need to do is you need to get a hundred of the small folk together. You need to right. mass execute them, and then you can get a you can get a clutch of dragon eggs. You can burn. They don't know that, so they're paying the price themselves. Um, right. No, I think you're absolutely and, and right. When they destroy, and after the dance and several other rebellions, as their bloodline becomes thinner and thinner and thinner, it's interesting that the dragons themselves start to, you know, uh, it's not a secret that by the time of Danny's day, there are no dragons left. And the last dragon born in the house Targaryen is a shriveled, mis- misshapen thing yeah. that was not even the size of a house cat. So I think I think that in general, the fandom is happy with that that assumption what we don't know is what is required is is just any old like is a is a field soaked with blood enough to like pay the price Hmm. or does there have to be some kind of ritual involved because i always thought i always viewed sort of the the fire that took a Miri Mazdur as sort of some kind of blood magic ritual i agree It, it has to have some kind of um intention to it but if if not like like that's all i'm saying is like what if what if you don't you know what what if the blood price like do you have to do a ritual because that kind of blows up my rhaenyra theory um it's almost like or if you don't do the ritual in time the price is going to be paid somewhere and it's some kind of maybe it's that's more random. it maybe like, like the, you're the channeling pro- versus yes. it like like so. you got a lightning rod which is mm-hmm. the ritual and if you don't have that lightning rod, who knows where the lightning is going to strike? But it's yeah, it, it will strike. So I think we could say like Damon goes and gets these eggs. He's really excited about them. Uh-huh. He, he's he's going to treat the eggs in a particular way. You've got to find some kind of blood magic outlet because the blood magic is going to find some kind of consequence. Yes, it has and to. and you need some kind of ritual to channel it. And if you don't channel it. You're actually, you, you know, it, it will actually result in tragedy. So, but it does sound like your theory, which I like, is that there's two prices to be paid. There's the blood price, but there's also a, a cost in humanity. And like, I think that's what Viserys that, is talking about. I think Viserys yeah, is that, like, that, that, we that, should have never messed with that kind right, of stuff. Right. So you have to pay the price in blood. You also have to pay the price in the humanity that the dragon takes from you by being its master, because it's kind of it's it's kind of mastering you as well. Yeah. I like well, that. anyway, th- these are my rules, and um, and I, I'm I'm just gonna go ahead and stick with them unless it's yeah. clear to me that they're proven otherwise. I'm kind of gonna go forward, and I'm gonna look for like what, wh- which which co- which commands do these dragons actually obey, and which yeah. which do they do they ever disobey a warlike command? That's yeah, because it's like, you know, Danny. that's one of her first tricks was to essentially get her three dragons to burn an entire city. Yep. <laughs> like, they love, they didn't have to be trained for shit to do that, you know. <laughs> that's right. Interesting. I think you're onto something. That's pretty sturdy Valerian tin foil you're weaving. All right. Okay. Well, um, I think I probably should just reiterate that this feed is, is going to jump right into the books again. But I, I will also mention that... It's Clash of Kings, right? That's Clash of Kings, one. but in addition to that, I do plan on 
uh, talking a lot about House of the Dragon. This this ne- these next ten episodes, I'll probably include an element on House of the Dragon uh, every episode. So it won't be the bulk of the episode. But if you're interested in hearing me talk more about the show uh, with guests from uh, academia, uh, you know, keep keep you know keep following this this uh, this feed. Yes. Um... So yeah, that's uh, this. Uh, I, I are we going to do a Maester's Corner for the wrap up, or you just want to leave it? I'm for available. The, the 10 episodes? I guess. I, I mean, because would... that's the thing. It's like what's been generating this is things from the show. So like, we don't have right. any more show things. Uh, maybe, maybe uh, we can do one last lore corner because like, there's always going to be lore questions. Maybe we can just do a roundup. Well, of those. let's think about it. And if it's like if something let's comes to it. mind, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If something comes to mind, we'll we'll be back. If not, I, I do encourage you to stay subscribed to the feed because, you know, like Anthony said, he's going to be doing a chapter-by-chapter discussion with a bunch of cool guests, um, experts from their fields in academia. And, med, you know, you've had medievalists and jousting experts. And you yeah. got, speaking of David J. Peterson, you had, you know, uh, <laughs> I noticed that Bald Move has never been a source on Wikipedia before, but... You have gotten this wedged in that door. Uh, you you are cited. Your your interview with him is cited as a as a canonical source mm-hmm. for some obscure bit of uh, Game of Thrones <laughs> bric-a-brac on Wikipedia. So mm-hmm. there's that. Thanks for getting us into history books, Anthony. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, I but, appreciate but yeah, that'll that. Be hey, in, that'll be coming in a weeks ahead. Fantastic first season, man. I'm I'm really. Nope. I'm Dude, so I was so you know this because we talked about. It, I was so afraid that this would be like if if this was just like average, uh-huh. I think it would be a disaster. But uh, you know, from the premiere to the finale, it's been it's been a thrill ride, man. I've been very pleased. Yeah. All right. Well, we will uh, we'll hear you back very soon. Um, and uh, th- thanks for thanks for having me on. Yeah. No. Thanks for keeping me company here in the corner. Okay, we have a little bit of after Maester action to, to discuss. Uh, Jordan from Canada says, The Dance of Dragons is essentially kicked off by the actions of two dragons disobeying their masters. The power these kids wield is beyond their control and something that Viserys hinted at earlier in the season. My question is, we know George's ending of A Song of Ice and Fire will be different from the shows. Are we getting a little hint of what's to come? Will we see a similar act take place at King's Landing between Drogon and Danny? Could that equate to some of the gray that is missing from the show's telling? Hot D is clearly adding to the lore, and I'm all for it. I think Danny didn't want to burn King's Landing. Drogon was just like, "Fuck this place." I think it would be kind of an interesting twist if Danny, at the last moment, tries to show mercy, and the dra- the Drogon is just too fucking mm-hmm. sexed up and bloodlusting, and <laughs> just torches the whole mm. place. Jesus, mm. I don't know. And then, like, what is that? Then, like, when Danny lands, does John believe her? Is she like? Is this like some kind of, you know, grand farcical tragedy? What What's clear to me is I think there's several pieces. Like, I think that that Germ has what's the opposite of disowned, uh, legitimized the mm-hmm. the bastard theory that Bran will sit on the I, I think he is is said that that's definitely the direction that the the the, the books are going to go but like you know Arya stabbing the night king and uh you know the fact that the night king hasn't even been established as a character in the books uh there's a lot of things that point that things will be very different and 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 I think these are actually ideas that 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 uh if you just heard the Anthony talk about in the Maester's corner these are things that that George is cooking up right now like these are 
These, this is his fucking gardening approach after he's written World of Ice and Fire and Fire and Blood and really given time to lay out these Targaryens and like how this would happen and and helping the writers on Fire or House of the Dragon. Like, yeah, like I don't think his mind is set on it. Like, I don't think mm-hmm. he has anything but just a few bullet points about how we'll get to the end. So, yeah, I, I expect that this is going to feed into the books as well. That's all that we're going to have time for this week. Uh Again, we have one more episode. If you'd like to send us feedback to hot D at baldmove.com next week for a wrap up episode and in, in, uh, including an interview with our buddy Kim Renfro from a cast of Kings. She hosts with uh, David Chin. Very excited about that. Really looking forward to seeing some more feedback. I, there's actually some things I'm saving next week that goes into more dragon lore uh, that I might also uh, discuss with Kim. So keep sending that stuff in hot D at baldmove.com. We got at least another week content. Uh, this feed is going nowhere. It's going to revert back to the electric Bukaloo feed, and it's going to feature Maester Anthony doing a chapter by chapter discussion of a clash of Kings. It's also going to feature every 10 weeks or so me and Jim coming back to talk about uh, the prequels. Uh, we just did like a deep dive yesterday in our off hours, just looking at all the different prequel series that are mm-hmm. out there and who are attached to showrunners. And there's fucking a lot, man. Uh, we'd like to break that stuff down, keep track of the Jon Snow sequel, keep track of next season of Hot D. Uh, and then if you like our fantasy coverage in general, you might want to consider subscribing to Bald Move Pulp. That's where we keep all of our discussion of zombies and spaceships and ray guns and dragons and uh, kings and magic powers. All that stuff is on Bald Move Pulp, and there's a lot of cool stuff coming up on uh, Uh, hopefully early next season we'll be looking at the last of us there's going to be a really great pulpy show on hbo max um you can follow us on twitter twitter.com slash bald move if you'd like to follow along with all of our release schedules both on the pulp and prestige side uh and if you think we've done a good job this season and you want to get more bonus content you want to you want to have our huge christmas holiday bash we do every december you want to get a christmas card for me and jim uh, sign up for the club. You can find that at support.baldmove.com. Thank you. If this is the last podcast, again, we have a wrap-up podcast, but I never know when people are going to say uh, it's over. Thank you, thank you, thank you for everyone that's listened. Thanks for keeping us at the top. Uh, you know, that's that's what we were. Me and Jim wanted to be at the beginning of the season. We said, oh, we just want to be scrapping towards the top of the rankings with the big boys and gals covering the show. And I think we uh, we accomplished that mission and it's all because of you guys uh, and gals listening and rating and review us and sending in the feedback. It's it's made it really special and it's it's been so nice. It's been so nice to have this big giant water cooler show where everybody's talking about it. And I felt felt real good about how the season coverage went. Jim, do you got anything to add? Yeah, hi, I'm just so I'm glad the show was so good this season because it's one thing to you know be scrapping at the top for a big show, but if you're not enjoying the process. Oh, it could be a slog. So yeah, it wouldn't I, have worked. We would have no. we would have been we we would have been uh, also Rans because we'd have been <laughs> bitching been and banging about it. it. And yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So that, that's what I'm grateful for. Yeah, and that everybody stuck around with us from from season eight of Game of Thrones, which obviously not the best, to now yeah. uh, hopeful return to form for the Game of Thrones franchise. Yeah. But we'll be back next week with another uh, wrap-up episode of Hot D with a lot of uh, fun twists and turns. Hope you stay with us there. If not, uh, we'll see you next season for sure. Until then, Mm -hmm. I'm your host, Aaron. And I'm Jim. Later. Later.